It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Recorded live. Welcome to Think or Be Even. And uh, today our guest is William Ramsey. And this is pretty intriguing stuff. Uh, he's written a book, I'll tell you right out now, that the title is Prophet of Evil. Your friend, Alistair Crowley, 9-11 and the New World Order. And that's about all the basic food groups you can get to in the conspiracy world. So this ought to be stuff I told William. I wasn't quite sure whether or not, uh, as I read more and more about Crowley, whether or not that might be you know, more myth than it was really substance. He's done enough research, and um, what he uh, has to share, I think, will be pretty surprising. So, uh, William, thanks a lot for coming aboard. How are you doing? Great. Thank you for having me. All right. Uh, before we go any further, real quick, though, uh, is there any place people can go to check out the book? I mean, now we have Amazon and some other. Is that possible for your book? Uh, yeah, you can see my book. I have a website at www.occult911.com, and also uh, for sale on Kindle is a biographical stick sketch. I can put one up on my website. I probably should, just a couple-page uh, blurb. So I'll try to get that up today or tomorrow. All right. Now, um, we had talked before, and as I just kind of alluded to briefly as we started this recording, uh, I, you know, I've gone back and forth about what, Crowley really was in substance, and whatever the substance was, be it great or not, it's evil. There's no two ways about it, and I guess he prided himself in that. But um, when we were talking, I, I, I started to think that perhaps, though he gets lionized a lot, I think, by people who are very much of the occult stripe, um, he might have been the real deal, unfortunately. And um, do you feel like you want to share the research or some of the research that, that you did on Crowley? Because I, I think your perspective is a new one and one I'd like to hear from. Okay, well, I came to Crowley through 9-11. Uh, I was interested in 9-11. I kept seeing these numbers that were unfamiliar to me, and I just tried to understand them. So uh, on the dates of, the, of September 11th, there was the 11s and 93, 77. I was trying to understand what their meaning was. I really wasn't, had never really read in depth anything about the occult. Uh, I consider myself a Christian, so I had really no understanding of what all these word numbers meant. And as I researched them, and there were other people out there who have discussed the 11s and 77, and, and I, I really uh, was led back to Crowley. So once I did all my research, I, I really felt that it was Crowley who had an influence after reading and understanding him. And uh, he was a very complex character. And some people, you see one facet of his character, and the occultists see another, and Christians see another. So once I understood him, I realized that his views suffused the entire 20th century. There were so many people that were related to and connected to him of import that uh, he was an important subject. And so I tried to look at him without, a, you know, without whitewashing him. I don't have any connections to the occult, so... I read most of the biographies. I read most of what he read, which I could get through. And he was a 
self self stated literature. He said he was addicted to reading and writing. He probably wrote thousands of documents uh, based on you know all of his interests, which were drama. Um, let's see what else he wrote: poetry. He wrote books on the occult. Uh, so he wrote his an 800-page biography called Confessions, which. Uh, you know, reveals a lot about his character. So I, I'm just curious, William, with his writing. I, I just, you don't mind me my asking, and, and uh, you know, don't let me take you away from the mainstream here. But I'm I'm curious. You know, I guess it was some kind of, uh, I wouldn't say propinquity because I don't know that they were all that uh, fond of each other. But he and Yates, I guess you could call them contemporaries, couldn't you? Yes, for sure. And they knew each other. They were in the same magical organization, the Golden Dawn. They related to each other. Uh, Yates commented on Crowley that uh, the Golden Dawn is not a reformatory, so he had very uh, close contact, and they actually butted heads over the uh, direction of where that organization was headed. Okay. I have to laugh, too, because I think James Joyce hated both of them. <laughs> because I remember, remember Yates was trying to advance, what was it, the, uh, the Celtic Twilight? Yeah, so he was a Celtic revivalist. That was a movement in the late 19th century and early 20th century. But Joyce told me, oh, that's the Celtic toilets. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, um, Yates claimed that he was an automatic writer. Uh, did uh, Crowley ever, and I'm, I'm just curious here, because he was as prolific as you've said he is, uh, did he ever mention that he wrote in a trance? Yes, many times. Okay. He actually he said that he was a, uh, a scribe for other entities, so spirits, and he wrote a lot like that. He was also the type of writer who only went through things once, which was why he had so much uh, so much literature left when he was when he died in 1947 at 72. Uh, do, do you and, believe that he could do that? Well, I think that there's so many instances in the past where people have either been into a trance or gone into some elevated state where you know they have automatic writing or scrying or something of that nature. And it's not just Crowley; it's Yates claimed to have that experience. Young claimed to have that experience. There's there's a lot of lists of people who, you know, of note who have had these uh, these experiences. And for me, I think that uh, if, uh, you know, my cosmology, Christian cosmology, I think that if somebody's trying to uh, contact other spirits, they can. So, yeah, I tend to believe I, I don't, you know, I wasn't there. I, I didn't see everything. But that's what he claimed. And, you know, I think that that's probably what, what happened. Well, the reason I bring that up, too, because the underpinning of this entire interview uh, with what you're going to bring forward, um, I guess even people who are understanding of conspiracy would say that, oh, no, this is a little too much for me. And the reason I say that, and I, and I think you know where I'm coming from, and that is I believe we're in agreement that what we're seeing right now and what this is leading to is spoken about in Scripture. I believe that we're headed for the trip. And we're dealing with a supernatural entity and the minions of such that are very powerful and, like we said, invested. And that's why when I ask you about whether you believe that Crowley really could uh, or was the subject of that or the object of that, I believe he is, and I believe that's what we're dealing with. And not that we should be afraid of it, but we have to understand that, again, this is not about flesh and blood, but principalities <laughs> of darkness. And uh, I think he's probably... Um, one of the foremost characters to which we can uh, ascribe that kind of uh, reputation. Agreed. And he uh, he thought of himself as 
you know, the chief of staff to the devil, literally. And he acted like it. His whole life was dedicated to that. He really never worked a real job in any common sense of the meaning. He was uh, an heir to a sizable fortune that was estimated to be about $20 million in today's terms. And um, he dedicated his whole life to just write, read. He was part of almost every occult group that he could be allowed into. And um, he really he really walked the walk. Uh, once you read his stuff, you realize that this wasn't a guy who was joking around. He, was, he really believed in the devil, and he really dedicated his life to his service, in my opinion. Um, real quickly, one thing that always struck me when I did a, some research on a little paper I was doing in my junior year, I have no idea why I did this, except I always picked characters that, that looked probably like they were interesting. And it was for an English class and a, a history class, and I picked Aaron Burr. Because I considered him somewhat of a dark figure in our history. And there were reports that when he went to Princeton, one night, and of course this could be all urban legend, you know, circa 17-something or other, but he threw back um, uh, the uh, shutters on his window, and someone heard him bid God goodbye. Okay, now this is in his college days. The reason I say it is that with Crowley and what you, what you uh, found out about him, I mean, usually nobody comes out of the womb wanting to be a demon. Is there a, right. a, a, a breakpoint at which you decided question. this is the way I'm going? That's a good question. There was. I think that he grew up in a, a, a subsect of the Christian faith called the Plymouth Brethren, and he was actually part of a subsect of that faith, which is called the Exclusive Brethren. So he had a very rigid home life. Uh, his father was also a very wealthy man. He spent most of his time pamphleteering through England and taking Crowley along his side. Crowley was only allowed to read the Bible, not any other type of literature. He was kept in uh, that sect environment where he could not uh, relate with other kids. They were only like allowed, he was only allowed to play with other people of the Plymouth, Plymouth Brethren. And uh, he was also kind of the victim of the English Christian school system. He was brutalized at his schools. He uh, was beaten, whipped, he had a six-month punishment that almost killed him. So for him, he was tormented by these experiences that he thought were stifling to him. So, And this was he, generated uh, by a Christian community. Correct. I mean, I think right. that that's basically it. He said, you know, uh, he said that he went over to Satan's side, like one of his quotes is, I was not content to believe in a personal devil and serve him in the ordinary sense of the word. I wanted to get hold of him personally and become his chief of staff. And this was after you know, experiencing all of these uh, kind of dark experiences with uh, the, his school system and his parents. Like he said, what he, he quotes on one experience, he said, I remember one licking I got on the legs because flogging uh, elsewhere is inappropriate. 15 minutes of prayer I got, 15 strokes of the cane, 15 minutes of prayer, 15 more strokes and more prayer on top of that. So, you know, he was... Uh, he was brutalized when he was younger, and that kind of turned him over. I think that, that that shaped his experience where he really wanted to move away from that. And he had kind of like, I'm going off to college, the classic, I'm going off to college experience where, you know, he went to Cambridge, one of the best schools in England at the time, and he abandoned everything he knew before. But he had a almost perfect knowledge of the Bible. So this wasn't somebody who veered off in that direction, well, you know, ignorantly. What was the uh, – I mean, did you get any kind of um... – uh, take on the Plymouth Brethren. I mean, there are a lot of groups that call themselves Christian, and some of them supposedly are, but but get to an ascetic level or some kind of bizarre behavior. I mean, obviously, you know, I mean, the Christian faith is, is about correction, but it's about restoration. 
and you know beating the snot out of somebody is probably not what Jesus wanted. Uh, right. Do you? Have, I mean, what, what, what is the what is the bottom line with the Plymouth Brethren? Have you ever come down to whether or not they were for real or they were just a misguided group that got a little crazy? Well, I think that the original founder, John, his name was John Nelson Darby, was a uh, aristocratic and intellectual person. He had, he, I think, had, you know, he had his own, he was an evangelist who kind of went through Curley's area, and I think that he was authentic, but the followers kind of, you know, went their own way and degraded it. Uh, but, you know, he believed that the Bible is the Word of God, so he was really a fundamentalist, so... I mean, from right there, that might be an indication of, you know, mm-hmm. the severity of that, that practice. So Crowley has, and, and I'll, I'll say this, I've talked to a number of people throughout my life who probably have left the flock if they were ever in it. Uh, and I'm not going to make any judgment about that, but time and time again, and I'm not going to mention the sex from which they came, but it's pretty much all in the same ballpark. And it was almost so zealot-like and almost, you know, like dervish-like that they just said, I'm out of here. And, I mean, they never came back to any other kind of modified form of uh, worship. They were gone forever. And that sounds like what happened with Crowley. I'm not trying to find an excuse for him because, honestly, we all have the Holy Spirit, and if you're convicted by that, it'll work its way out. Um, so, I mean, it's upon Crowley if you, if you decide if you never want to come back again. But... Um, can can we lay it all on that uh, incident um, that you know that he was going that way, or is this something that just made him now start to become rebellious and exploratory, and then the rest is history? Well, you know, you, you, the thing is, is that he could have seen the injustices of what was happening to him through those various sects and through the institutions, and said, "I still believe in God and Christ. I'm going to follow Him, but somewhere different." You know, mm-hmm. so right. I think that he made a conscious choice to, you know fight against what he saw as, as uh, something oppressive. Um, so um, when I'm he curious, saw falsities. He saw a lot of falsities in Christianity. Sure. He just uh, you know, decided that he was going to make war. Literally, in a lot of his writings and his works, he was making a form of warfare against it. And, you know, and, and it's strange, too, because it's not, it's not Christ's fault or it's not the Lord's fault. It's people. Right. And yet, who gets the mud thrown on him? You know? And we right. see that to this day. Of course, that's raging now with some of the people who represent themselves as Christians in some very, very critical uh, areas uh, about warring, you know, just uh, what they call a righteous war. Uh, you know, and we spoke about this, too, and it's like, hey, you know, guys, should we get right back to, to Scripture and what it says instead of following people who, like, you know, you mentioned with the Plymouth Brethren, whoever might have come in after the founder might have taken it down a side street it wasn't supposed to go, but that's the way it went. And, of course, Crowley was uh, uh, exposed to that. But was there ever a moment that he wrote about, like I said with Burr, or like you read, and I don't think this is necessarily fiction, by the way, um, if you understand what I'm saying, the, the famous tale that lives on and on, Dr. Faustus, uh, right. where he makes a deal as well. Uh, was there a time where Crowley had that kind of uh, black epiphany? Yes, he did. He had a spiritual event when he was in, what he termed a spiritual event while he was in uh, Cambridge. He said that... Uh, he had awakened to the knowledge and he possessed a magical means of becoming conscious of and satisfying a part of his nature, which had concealed itself. And uh, he had said during that spiritual turning that the forces of good were those which had constantly oppressed me. I saw them daily destroying the happiness of my fellow men. 
Since, therefore, it was my business to explore the spiritual world, my first step must be to get into personal communication with the devil. So that happened very young, like when he was 22. Mm-hmm. That's according to, you know, his own writing. But, uh, yeah, so I think that he had he had a kind of, you know, crossroad experience, and he said, I'm going the left-hand path. Uh, I had done some research for a class I had back, and I guess it was 72. It was for a speech. And, again, like I said, whenever I try to write something or, or do something, I was so – very much, um, uh, I, I guess you could say, self-effaced about no having no talent. I figured if I could get a topic that was interesting, well, heck, if I stunk, at least I'd like the topic, you know? So in 72, I was doing research on Satan worship. Um, but I was, I was shocked at that time at how much was going on. Now, that may have always been happening, but, like, I never knew because I never stuck my nose in that direction. Uh-huh. But I realized there was some major events. In fact, there was there was like a teenage suicide pact uh, in Violin, New Jersey, which you know kind of hit close to home at that time. And I and, and the stories around it. I'm starting to wonder, you know, because that was at a time too, like when Black Sabbath came out and Coven came out, and we all played around with it like it was funny. But there was something I think in a lot of us that said, you know, we shouldn't be messing with this stuff. But apparently at that time, a lot of people did. And um, I don't know if that was one of those times when it was more in vogue. But where I'm going with this is in Crowley's life, and because of some of the things that were floating around, some kind of what you would call perhaps, William, like chic religion or whatever. Right. It, it, was there a high time? I mean, and, and, and I, don't, I, I know you know there's a tie there with Theosophy and Blavatsky, but are we looking at a period in which Crowley lived also where this is almost like not only a chic thing to do, but gaining strength amongst probably the aristocrats and the literati. Yes, I would definitely say so. I think that there were uh, times when the interest in kind of spiritualism in general right. swelled, ebbed and swelled. So right before the 20th century in the 19th, late 19th century in England and France, there was a massive upswing in what would be called spiritualism. So all these different figures were popping up. Lavatsky, there was a Golden Dawn, uh, there was... Uh, masonry was always around, so there was an interest in, like, uh, uh, you know, contact with other entities. This was all taking place. And then it seems like after World War One, everybody just didn't want to have anything to do with the, anything to do with the dark-sided uh, elements of that culture. So it ebbed down and then swelled back up again before World War Two, and ebbed down again. So yeah, there was a time for sure, and he had the advantages of being a very rich person at the time, at the height of the British Empire, when the sun never set on the British Empire, mm-hmm. and uh, he had all the benefits of a person who was an heir to a uh, large fortune, so he indulged in almost all of that uh, kind of spiritual. He said he was white hot on three points. He was interested in poetry, climbing, and magic, so he he claimed himself to stay up all night reading every book he could get. His favorite writer was Eliphas Levy, whose real name was uh, Louis Alphonse uh, Constant. He was a French uh, magician, and he had some very dense uh, learned tomes or grimoires that, you know, he read all the time. So he was definitely a man of his time, and that that interest wasn't something that was, uh, you know, uncommon. It was very common throughout all all the literature of that time, this kind of spiritualism and the interest in new ideas, and, you know, theosophy was really at a heyday with Blavatsky. 
and you know her books and influence spanned both England, Europe, and the United States. So, All right. yeah, he he was a part of that movement for sure. And you can place Crowley uh, in university at Cambridge. Uh, what are we looking at there is that about the turn of the century, or? Yeah, he uh, he went to Cambridge in yeah about nineteen no eighteen uh, ninety five to ninety eight I think right. it was. So he was right there. He was going to school with the upper class. I think he said, you know, I was I was going to school with a more or less privileged set of parasites. More more or less, he said, mostly surrounded by a more or less happy, healthy, prosperous set of parasites. So yeah, he was one of them. He was. Uh, he was in school, and the, the thing is, is he had the influence of all these other noted people. He was at uh, Trinity College at Cambridge, where Francis Bacon, Isaac Newton, Russell, and Darwin had all uh, studied. So he saw himself among the elite. Are you you saying Russell is in Bertrand? Yeah, Bertrand Russell, sorry. Um, and, you know, he's influenced by Byron, Shelley, these uh, poets. He thought of himself as a poet, although he wasn't a very good one. But uh, he saw himself as... Uh, Influenced by them, Sir Richard Burton, who was the famous adventurer. Uh, you know, the thing is, you talk about Shelley, uh, Byron, and you think about that crew. Um, that that was uh, again another like literati enclave, like would come later, uh, like the one to which uh, Virginia Woolf belonged. You know, libertines right. and all that. But I mean, it would have been okay, I guess, if Crowley had stuck to try, you know, to writing fiction. He might have been good at it. But um, he, was, he was not interested, was he, necessarily in being an author? Well, I think he was. I think he tried to become part of that circle. I just think that he never got the literary claim he desired. He was definitely interested in fame, and he had written in the vein of the decadence and the Sir Edgar Allan Poe. He tried uh, writing books on those kind of dark subjects and poetry in the style of Baudelaire. But uh, it didn't seem to catch. It wasn't as popular as they were. He, he, I don't think he was. A, he really wasn't a class A poet. He was a class B. He didn't rewrite any of his works. He seemed to be more interested in quantitative uh, writing instead of qualitative. So. Well, that's interesting too because you could take a look at that uh, again with Yeats. But if you want to pump it up a little bit to somebody who I wouldn't say said necessarily he wrote um, under a trance or automatic writing, but just like burst out with stuff and never edited was Kerouac, you know, in, in, the, in right. the post-World War II culture here, because their belief was the first take is the best take, and anything else after that just kind of sullies the work. Also, you know, if you can get away with it, that's great, because who the heck likes to edit? I mean, you had to go through that also. And let me just ask you real quickly with, regarding the, the, the mechanics of writing. Um, was this, this is the first book that you attempted? Yes, this is the first book I've written. And... After the original writing, may I ask you, uh, did you did you go through a number of rewrites or anything like oh, that? Oh, tons, yeah, I mean, at least ten. I mean, I've gone through multiple rewrites. I've had people read it and give me their advice. I I did a lot of editorial stuff myself. I I know that this subject was difficult. I really pretty much uh, didn't head towards any major publishing house with the material. Mm -hmm. And the book really reads kind of more as a research paper, a long research paper, as opposed to you know, it's a non-fictional narrative, but I, I put 50 foot, 500 footnotes on there just so that people would see that I'm not drawing this information out of the blue, right. that they can easily reference it. Well, what's good uh, about okay. that, too, William, also, and I'm glad you did that, because two of my favorite guys that have written, um, that I guess you can call are out there in the alternative patriot area, 
um, didn't do it. I, you know, indexing and footnoting and, and bibliography sometimes can be very, very burdensome. But what's lost when that happens is that you don't have other resources that one can go to, but not necessarily to check on you, but if they want to go deeper, then they have these books to follow, and I think that's a great resource to have, and it makes one's work, in your case also, uh, a reference work as well. And I think that's a great idea. So, but, uh, you know, again, I mean, this is the, the un, shall we say, it's the unattractive part of writing that everybody forgets about. Yeah, there's, there's definitely, uh, you know, some, some sweat and tears there. It's, it's, it's a tough subject, too. Crowley's not exactly the uplifting uh, writer, and he was, he was a voluminous writer, so you had to parse through quite a bit of, of, of his stuff to really kind of find what he was getting at and some of the deeper things. And I'm not interested in magic or anything like that, mm -hmm. but, you know, reading through it then, I realize how many people who talk about Crowley whitewash him. You know, he's really been a figure who his followers, you know, only say about 50% of what the real information is. I was going to ask and they you never that. really talk about the Satanism. It's just all about magic and self-growth and things of that nature. Well, in, um, not, not well stated, but inherent in my email to you, because you talked about Crowley. I had no idea, you know, who you were, what was going on. I was like, all right, what is this going to be about? Because I learned my lesson. Uh, in years gone by, about having people on who I thought were egalitarian, they might have been, but they basically liked the dark side. And uh, as I told you, they would probably uphold Crowley. I think that's really good stuff. And I, I wanted to separate myself from them. When you came along, I'm like, boy, do I want to get back into this again? And that's why I wanted to find out where you were coming from. But knowing now where you're at, I would have to say putting myself in your shoes, when you went into that kind of subject matter, I think about Nietzsche saying, you know, when you look long in the abyss, the abyss looks long in you. Is there a time, you know, when you turn around and look at your wife or you, you know, significant people around you and say, man, you know, i got to take a week off because this stuff is really sullying my soul. Did that ever happen? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's uh, either all psycho psychosomatic uh, problems. You don't sleep as well, and you go, oh, my God. And also, because Crowley, once I learned about Crowley, so much of our 20th century culture was open to me in new facets that I hadn't seen before. Once I understood the relevance of 9377 and its attachment to other uh, notable figures and what, uh, you know, Crowley's, Crowley started a religion and what his religion has clearly had an influence. It was, uh, it was a little mind-blowing. I mean, I, I was like, wow, this is amazing. And I, that's really what uh, impelled me to write the book is I think people should know this about how many people really these false prophets or, you know, people that we would assume cultists really were occultists. They were uh, followers of Crowley or influenced by Crowley, like Timothy Leary, L. Ron Hubbard, and a wide variety of musical and uh, cinematic notable figures. So uh, I, I would say, yeah, it had an effect upon me. It still does. But I think that when you put the light to it, it exposes so much uh, darkness that it's like, okay, so this is really the story. So it confirms the Christian cosmology, mm -hmm. it shows that evil does exist, that there is a good and bad way to live life, and all of the, the leaving of Crowley should be rejected in toto. It's, it's awful, evil, and he left a wide swath of pain, misery, and destruction in his wake. Um, quick question, just curiosity, kind of like a footnote thing. Um, did uh, Crowley ever cite Albert Pike or anything? 
he he knew a lot about masonry. He tried to actually redraft the entire Masonic uh, 33rd degrees. He tried to uh, get rid of what he thought were inane and words and uh, historical elements that were uh, not germane or not actually correct. But the Masons really didn't want to go for it. But as far as like direct quotes of Pike, I didn't see any, but... Uh, there were other notable figures, John Yarker and a lot of the important Masons around the turn of the century. But the other occultists were really, and, and this is a generality, all the occultists, whether Masons, Theosophists, uh, OTO, were all very leery of Corley. He was just so dangerous that none of them really wanted to have too much to do with him. When you say dangerous, um, how so? I, I mean, obviously... Uh, Physically, or that he was very dominant spiritually? I think he was a dominant spirit. Every occult organization he ever wanted to get in relation to, he either tried to rewrite all their doctrines and take it over or create some form of dissension. So, for example, the Golden Dawn was largely uh, turned defunct because of his, his uh, machinations within the, the group. Uh, so that split it apart. They had to reform. After he left uh, the OTO, he immediately started rewriting all of their rituals. And this OTO originally was in German, a cold organization, but he rewrote all their rituals and uh, took it over in 1925. Uh, so I think initially, the according to what I read, the OTO members back then were appalled that somebody would just become a member and then say, oh, I'm going to write, rewrite the whole thing. And he put in all of his... Uh, documentation. He had amassed his own right, occult writings, and then he systematized them in whatever organization he went into, whether it was the AA, which was his own magical organization, or the OTO. So they were like, we're, I think my understanding was is they were surprised to see all this new information inserted into their, uh, into the OTO. So um, yeah, he was, a, he was always a dominant personality in any environment. He was usually the boss. He never <clears throat> allowed anybody to you know, take over or get in the way of his being the head of anything, really. Did anybody ever challenge him in any kind of famous uh, nose-to-nose that's, you know, and said, look, you know, this is not what we're about or we don't want you around here? Did you come across anywhere where he was uh, uh, opposed? Well, on an individual level and on a, on a larger national level, he was barred from Oxford and Cambridge. He wasn't allowed to go there and try to proselytize or find uh, followers. He was kicked out of France and uh, Italy. He claimed he was constantly surveilled his whole, you know, adult life, uh, whatever country he was in. And there were followers who uh, would butt heads with him for sure. There was one who some people might know, Preston Sturges was a famous, he was a famous director. And his mother fell in with Crowley. And he actually butted heads with him. I think Crowley called this this future director like a little brat. And Preston Sturges wrote in his memoirs that, uh, see, he just found a quote. He basically said that, you know, the guy was dangerous. We were lucky to get away from our lot with our lives. He said, Sturges said of Crowley, the practitioner and staunch defender of every form of vice historically known to man, generally accepted as one of the most depraved, vicious, and revolting humbugs who ever escaped from a nightmare or a lunatic asylum universally despised and enthusiastically expelled from every country he ever tried to live in. 
Mr. Crowley, nevertheless, was considered by my mother to be not only the epitome of charm and good manners, but also the possessor of one of the very few, few genius-based brains she had been privileged to observe at work during her entire lifetime. So uh, he and Sturgis did butt heads, and I think Sturgis said something about him that uh, he said something like, if it wasn't, you know, if I was older, I would have killed him or something like that, basically. <laughs> That'll do it. <laughs> yeah, so, right. you know... Uh, but also, you said something. I was going to make a wisecrack, so I'll do it now. And you said that um, the group uh, was begun in Germany. And I, I was going to say, like, well, why should they be any different? Did it strike you at all? And I know this isn't at the core of what you were doing, but you know, the Brits and the, and the Germans have bloodlines together. They go back a long way. I mean, they're, they're separated by like what one gene or something. But boy, oh boy, this—I mean, the, the occult organizations, or at least questionable organizations seemed to flow out of Germany. Did, did you come upon that at all? Not that you needed to opine on this, but, uh, and, and if you if you wish to, whether it was through your research or not, does it not strike you, interestingly, that a lot of stuff, you know, I mean, you, you look at the beginning of Harvard um, um, <clears throat> Skull and Bones comes from there, the Fool Society, I mean, all this stuff, and even the Rosicrucians, the, uh, the center of Correct. Rosicrucianism in the United States is Quakersville, Pennsylvania, and they make it clear we're the German Rosicrucians and we're not part of those guys out there by you <laughs> in Santa right. Cruz or wherever they are. Yeah, uh, the, go ahead, Willie. Did you, did you have any idea about that? Or? Well, I didn't see a lot. I definitely saw that the Germans were, were – there was a heavy occult manifestation in Germany, and Crowley was part of that. He traveled there frequently. Uh, he was there in the Weimar Republic in the early 30s. And uh, he he thought of himself as the as a strange word an Esdras of the Illuminati or a defender of the Illuminati, which is you know Wise Helps Group. So mm -hmm. these guys incorporated a lot of the thoughts from occultists everywhere else. Although there may not have been a direct line between Wise Help and Crowley, he knew of what they were about. So they incorporated their ideas, and uh, I think he was very he was. Uh, he he spent his life doing the occult, so he was intimately aware of what the kind of occult environment was all over the world. Uh, and curiously, one last question about some of these occult groups that, that were birthed out of uh, Germany, as far as we know, uh, and that would also be the Rosicrucians. Uh, uh, just within the research you did on Crowley, did he have any take on the Rosicrucians or give them any kind of ranking in, in kind of like the pyramid of occult groups? Well, I don't think he did. I think that the... Uh, the Golden Dawn was uh, an, a, a Rosicrucian society. That was its original. I mean, it was also called an irregular masonry, but they had a lot of their ideas from Rosicrucianism. Mm -hmm. They had some of their rituals were like the the burying and reliving of Christian Rosenkreuz. And so they, they drew heavily. So, you know, it's all part of that occult current. And he knew the head of the uh, Amork, which is the ancient mysterious order of the Rosy Cross in the United States. His name was, which escapes me now, but he had met him and said he was a good man, which in Crowley's perverse view of the world, good is evil, evil is good. So he, uh, he, he, he wrote of the head of the Rosicrucians in the United States as a guy who was using magic to make money. And uh, he did. I mean, the guy really did make money in San Jose. They have a full city block there, a huge Egyptian museum that they... Yep. That's right. You know, ride uh, poor, gullible high school students and middle school students through daily. Uh, and uh, you can see the school buses in front of there. Uh, William, nice did school. you ever go up there, by the way? San Jose? 
You had to go see that place? Oh, yeah, I've been in there. I've been in there many times. I was one of the suckers who was taken when I was in high school. So. <laughs> I mean, I, I grew up in Northern California. I live in Los Angeles now. But, yeah, I mean, it's uh, prevalent. It's a nice place. You see all the obelisks and, you know, the temples, and there's a Sir Francis Bacon Library, and there's an Egyptian museum with authentic Egyptian relics, and uh, there's a big picture. I wish I could remember the guy who started its name, but um, I can't offhand. What's interesting is uh, we have somebody who listens and kind of contributes uh, to the show, uh, Liam from the U.K., and we, we've gone back and forth about a bunch of things, and I, I pretty much trust his take. But one of the things he said to me, and I think that's starting to make more sense to me, is that the Rosicrucians, I believe, are older than the Masons. Mm, not sure about that, but I think so. However... Their original writings go back to, like, the, the 16th and 15th century. All right. So I don't yeah. know whether where that predates Masonry or not, but it's, it's a long time ago. But he said over there, um, and I'm starting to think that this might be the case, like a lot of people who are in the conspiratorial alternative, you know, historical information area understand Freemasonry and understand some of the occult symbolism that it embraces. Uh, that doesn't make every Mason a bad guy, but if you go up high enough, you start to wonder, like, this is kind of interesting when you get to the, you know, the thirties in um, the Scottish, right? Where you go higher, you know, in, in the, in the Royal, uh, uh, what was that? The York, right? Rather, excuse me. But I'm wondering now if they more or less are being held out there, to be the um, pinatas, if you will, where it's always been the Rosicrucians who were, I guess we consider themselves more powerful, more intellectual, uh, imbued better uh, financially, and that they're the real shakers, and they let the Masons take it in the chops. Uh, not that you should have any opinion on that necessarily, but I'm, not, I'm just throwing that out there and you know, does that resonate with you at all? Or? Yeah, well, I think it's a good point. I think people, you know, when they watch the events, they're talking about the Masons. They think the Masons have an influence, and I think they do in kind of shaping the world as far as in the cold. I mean, Crowley derided them as a bunch of, uh, you know, drunkards who engaged in financial fraud or financial fixes. So he had a, a kind of a uh, – he, he had a very arrogant view of their whole practices, but he was – far more hardcore than they were so um but uh you know if you look at the events of 9-11 which i'll prove after we talk about crowley mm -hmm. i mean it's all crowley's numbers so people are sitting around talking about oh it's the masons it's the masons of doing this but 11 93 77 and 175 are really non-masonic numbers right. uh so you know interesting you should say that and of course we'll talk about that later without a doubt um because that should not be overlooked but we're, at, we're about almost 40 minutes after the hour. Uh, but we're talking with William Ramsey. The book is Prophet of Evil, Alistair Crowley, 9-11, and the New World Order. Uh, again, um, how many – do you have other versions of this book? Do you have it online? Do you have it ebook? What are What are all um, um, the possibilities with regard to how people can uh, have your work? That's a good question. I, I decided to, you know, put it on Kindle. I'm trying to get it on iBooks, which is for the uh, iPad, and I put it on Lulu as a, I think uh, Apple requires you to put it on one of these uh, kind of like self-publishing websites so that it can be formatted into the EPUB format and then inserted into the Apple system. So it's there. It's waiting to go into iBooks, and then I sell it on my website. I can sell it in, to you in PDF. I can just ship it out right away, and also a hardbound. It's really a softbound cover, 
Uh, there's about 80 pictures, and, uh, you know, I tried to keep it short. I really didn't want to. I could have written a 400-page or 500-page, you know, monstrosity, but I really just wanted to get all of the, you know, salient points of Crowley and show that there's a continuum from him straight through kind of our modern culture to the events of 9-11 and the New World Order. So I tried to do that in a readable, you know, digestible book. I didn't, you know, really want to get too detailed. No, and, and I'll tell you, uh, somebody um, whom was, was close to me um, wrote a 1,600-page book on CD. I don't know. That's, that's kind of tough, you know. I think we'd have been better off if, if, if one had known that you were going to go this long to at least break it up in volumes to do something because, uh, you know, I, everybody loves electronics, and it's great. But I tell you what, if you can't bring a 1,600-page book with you and, and do with it what you will when you want to, you cannot sit at the computer, I don't think, and just just bear down on that. You know, and it's you know, just a. It's great. It's to actually, have, as a writer, I think it's actually harder to write a shorter book in some ways than it is a longer because yeah. in a longer one you just throw everything up against the wall, and you got a book. You know, but a shorter one, you have to kind of distill. You got to make your points. You have to uh, make sure it's tight, and yeah. readable. So, I mean, 200 pages to some people is long, but. Uh, for me, it was just that was just the number that I was I was stuck with. I really wanted to keep it at that, you know, something that people could read in two or three days, hopefully, and uh, you know, digest the information, not just like War and Peace, where you by the time you're at the end of the book, you don't even know how it started. You know, here's your phone book. It's War and Peace. Have a good time. Yeah. Well, well, let me ask you because I I think I know the answer to this, but I, I want to I'd like to hear you. Um, probably one of the the greatest wonderments of writing something uh, as you have is the research because, boy, I tell you, I mean, it is an onion and you can go everywhere. Did you find that even though your curiosity intellectually and otherwise wanted to bring you down in other volumes and other volumes, did you find yourself saying, whoa, whoa, you know, I, I, I got to stop here. I gotta yeah, that's a great up. question. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I wrote I had my first iteration of the book was just Crowley and then his followers and I just went through the political issues uh, with politicians, and I just said, you know what, I'm just going to focus on Crowley. This is information people are not familiar with generally. They've generally either been lied to, deceived, or uh, they haven't been, you know, truths about Crowley have been omitted that I think are salient. So I actually have a second book I'm kind of working on, which is called Children of the Beast, which are the people who have been influenced by Crowley. And, uh, you know, we like I said, Leary Hubbard, other important people who are seen as gurus or, you know, cultural leaders who are really uh, Crowley's little minions. And, you know, so, yeah, I could have kept it longer, but I just really wanted to tighten it up and keep it readable. Now, and, you know, I understand as well, um, research really is a fantastic thing. And I think that more than anything else uh, has made me realize that without a doubt, Truth, truthful history, let's just say that, is far better than fiction. Oh, that's so interesting. Crowley was very interesting, even though he was extremely evil. He touched so many people's lives. He was he was the contemporary of all kinds of artists, writers, uh, Somerset Maugham, H.L. Mencken, Aldous Huxley. He actually drew a portrait of Aldous Huxley or painted a portrait. And, uh, you know, some other people who were kind of lost to history, one guy's by the name of William Seabrook, Seabrook, it was kind of like, uh, 
Oh, he was an adventure writer of his age, very, very popular back then, but kind of not around anymore. And uh, uh, who the guy who wrote Tropic of Cancer, Anias Nin, who was a oh, yes. semi-scandalous, you know, uh, auto uh, biographer, autobiographer. So they all knew him, and uh, you know, I think that's pretty fascinating for me. Is like my understanding of Crowley was very. You know, puddle deep. I just had this. Okay, this is an occultist. This is a guy. I, I just thought maybe he lived out in the, you know, the forest, and I had no idea what he was really up to. Uh, we're going to come up to about 45 minutes, and if it's okay with you, we'll take a break and come back because I think we're going to probably go another 45. Is that okay, William? Sounds great. All right. Before we do that, though, I just want to ask you kind of as a parting question uh, on which we can leave this first uh, half. Um, interesting about what you had said because are you aware, by the way? <laughs> the world's like largest book by Ayn Rand, Atlas Shrugged. They're going to try to do a movie on this. No, I'm not familiar with it. <laughs> I can that only be imagine. Have you? Yeah. Oh, I, I, I don't even know where they're going to start or finish. When you like, we were talking about like, where do you go with this? But apparently, that's going to happen. And I don't know necessarily if that's generated by the times in which we live, or somebody wanted to tackle it because everyone who ever thought about doing it since the publication of that book failed and she's another libertine too that was in a certain coterie if you if you will sure i mean sure. i i can i mean i looked at that book and i, I just asked myself why <laughs> yeah i don't i don't know you uh, know I, yeah, that, I, it, it attracts a certain you know class of people so i guess uh she was an interesting figure no question well she she attracted me but i don't know what class i fit in but i mean i'll tell you it's like i and i think i'll just like part here that was enough folks right. we're talking with uh william ramsey and we're going to just take a break right now. For you, that doesn't mean much. We're going to break this audio up into two sections. So uh, you have a part one and two probably at the same length, about 45 minutes. And see us on the second side. All right, folks, you're still with us. Round two, think we'll be eating. We have with us William Ramsey. Uh, by now you know what the work is, and that is uh, Alistair Crowley. He is the subject of this, Prophet of Evil. Good old Alistair Crowley, 9-11 and the New World Order. Uh, and one more time, I, you know, actually, the link will be up there, but now that I've mentioned it, just go ahead and, and nail it again, William, where they can go on the web. Uh, you can go to www.occult911.com. If you have any questions or anything, my email is www.occult911 at gmail.com. Right. And I, the book can be found on Kindle and hopefully on iBooks soon. Yeah, I'm really liking that Kindle, but I'm becoming such a Luddite. I don't know if I'm going to do that, but that is attractive, I must admit. For as long as the juices run, if you know what I mean. Right. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's pick up, if we could, uh, and build from there. Um, Crowley in his, in his uh, student days and such, uh, was at a time, there's a lot of stuff going around uh, in London at that time. Uh, Sir Halford McKinder, the first geopolitician, I, should, I guess you could say, foretold what um, would be the prized uh, land to... Um, I guess, uh, make captive if you want to have the last empire. Uh, Sir, uh, let's see now, it's Robert U. Benson uh, wrote a book called Lord of the World. Uh, you have Rhodes hanging around there. You have um, uh, Milner and his kindergarten taking off from when Rhodes died. A lot of, a lot of architects for the way that the world will be, uh, probably in this century, sometime, no doubt. And also in the mix there, you know, again, is another character like Crowley. Uh, did, you, did you get anything about him where they had some kind of like general meeting, like, for instance, 
with some of these characters uh, with Rhodes, it was, I believe, what was it, St. Elmo's? I, I can't remember. I, think it was so I didn't see a lot of these kind of world shapers, the people who kind of shaped the new world order of their day. Mm-hmm. I didn't see a lot of contact okay. between Crowley and them. Uh, he was more of a literary figure, and he had made a decision. He, he thought about going into politics, but, you know, moved against that and moved towards just a career in occultism. But not a lot of, uh, not a lot of contact, but he was a very well-informed person, mm-hmm. so he probably was familiar with them. And it's not something that I... I was really just trying to get a general gist of Crowley, so I didn't try. I didn't focus on his kind of uh, connections with those kind of world shapers. I guess. Yeah, well, I'll get emails because I can't remember the hotel where they all met. The Coefficient Club was part of with the webs and such, but they were happening at that time too. But it always would strike me that necessarily um, Crowley probably wasn't really welcome in those circles because he was just a little bit out there, and um, I wouldn't be surprised. But I, but it just strikes me as as extremely interesting. The stuff that was floating around uh, in that city at that time and um, what has happened because of it. Uh, can you tell me, of all the orders that he got involved with, uh, and I, I would believe, um, I think according to your research, we're looking at the Golden Dawn, the Astromorgenum, which is still alive and well, and the OTO, and we'll get into the uh, dilemma later on. Um, was he a charter member of any of them, and is there a reason why he was drawn to that with any kind of doctrine that ran through them? Well, I think that he was trying to acquire as much occult information as possible. So he was very ambitious. He had tons of free time, and he he had a general idea that he would in, get involved in almost any occult group that would take him. So where somebody might say, oh, this person's straight Freemason, that's all they do, Crowley just would join everything. And that was his position towards all of his followers as well. So, you know, if, uh, he, he was part of what would, you know, today might be called Mystery Babylon. He was in everything, so, and aware of everything. He was he was 33rd degree Mason. He went on the, the rights of Memphis and Misraim, 90 degree and 95th degree by Cagliostro, those ones. He, uh, OTO, he started his own organization. He was arguably part of witches' covens in England that, you know, are very, you know, there's a lot of apocryphal information regarding that. So, um, yeah, he was, a, and he influenced most of them, most of the places that he got involved with. He was always trying to educate. He was very erudite, so he thought they should basically be doing what he thought, you know, was, was the correct uh, rituals and information, etc. Well, with these three organizations that we're talking about, the Golden Dawn, uh, AA, and OTO, uh, that you've mentioned them and have, I guess, put them a little bit in the forefront of everything, is that because he, he made the, the greatest inroads there, that his influence was most um, um, evident in those uh, organizations? Yeah, I would say so. I would think that the, the Golden Dawn for him was more of kind of like uh, elementary school. That's where he learned almost everything he got. He learned about the use of ritual, magical implements, uh, how to conduct himself. He absorbed uh, the, the head figure who really, argue, uh, even Yates said this, the head figure was a guy by the name of McGregor Mathers, and he carried himself as a magician, used the implements. He spent all of his time, he was kind of like Crowley, he never really had a legitimate working job. He spent all of his time in the libraries of London and Paris uncovering old grimoires, and uh, Crowley aped him or copied him pretty much to a T for, you know, his uh, his magical career. 
And as far as the AA, AA was strictly Crowley, that's all. Mm-hmm. The only influence, the only person who wrote all the rituals, etc., was Crowley. And the OTO, the story of the OTO was it was originally a German organization started by Freemasons in German, Germany. It was back then termed an irregular Freemasonic group. And uh, the people who started were also members of the German Secret Service, so you see the tie between the mm-hmm. kind of intelligence networks and these occult groups which still goes on today, but uh, they actually came to Crowley and claimed that he stole some of their information, but they had come to the same conclusions at the same time, which was uh, the taking of rituals and a lot of the ritual uh, ceremonies and inserting sexual practices or sexual magic into them. So uh, they became attached, and once the head of uh, the OTO met Crowley, they made him the head of the OTO in England. So, uh, you know, that was basically it. And then Crowley, eventually the, the former head of the OTO passed away and Crowley took over after his passing to become the, the outer head of the order. Did, uh, did Crowley have any kind of uh, influence in, uh, quote, bringing OTO to the United States? Well, that's a good question. I think he probably did. I think that he was a proselytizer as far as you know, his followers, one of them was Grady McMurtry, who became Hymenius Alpha, who was the next head of the OTO, and he was headquartered in Berkeley in Northern California. So for sure, you know, there were little out, you know, little groups and lodges. There was also a lodge in uh, uh, California. It was called the Agape Lodge, mm-hmm. and Jack Parsons, people might have heard of Jack Parsons, oh, and yeah. Ron Hubbard were were affiliated with that. Well, I tell you what, that was a. I'm scribbling these notes with a with a magic marker here, and one of them I was going to say is uh, whether uh, JPL and Parsons uh, had any kind of direct dealings with uh, Crowley. Uh, do I assume they had? Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, there was uh, letters. There, the the missives between Parsons and Crowley still exist. Uh, they were in contact. Crowley had a. Uh, controlling hand apparently in the Agape Lodge, one of the guys who was the head of it, I guess went down a wrong path and Crowley had him removed and installed Parsons as the head. So Crowley was still, uh, you know, had his dictatorial involvement even, and this is later on in his life, you know, in the late 30s or 40s, early 40s. So there was still contact. Crowley was known to have, he traveled under a variety of different names. He had all kinds of pseudonyms. He wrote under different names, but he traveled to uh, one of the followers who was in Vancouver under a different name. So, yeah, this was common common behavior to be in contact with his followers. Um, did, did Parsons meet an untimely end? Do you remember? Yeah, Parsons was, uh, he was a rocket scientist, and he was always doing experiments. He was one of the first people to put to, put together a uh, propulsion system, a jet propulsion system. He was doing experiments in his, I think his basement, no, it's a garage, and he dropped a fulminant of mercury, which is very explosive, and it, uh, it killed him. I um, uh, can't remember the date. I'm just wondering if that, you know, if, that, if it was in an accident, if you catch my drift. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It was yep. suspicious. It was suspicious. Yep. He had worked around uh, explosives all of his life, even when he was, you know, 10, so to make an accident of that sort at, you know, after going through so many rigorous scientific uh, experiments with, with explosive yeah. devices is a little uh, suspicious. So, yeah, but you know, I remember to the old story as the lumberjack used to tell me, you never get, you never get hurt with your chainsaw until you've worked with it for five years. 
the, you know, the point being is that you respect it, and when you lose respect, that's when you screw up. Um, right, so. But it's still, again, um, there was an individual out there. I don't know, if you, uh, William, if you've ever uh, heard of her. Her name is Maury. She has a website called Reflections uh, in the Night. And she came out with a book in which she said that she was basically raised up by her parents who were involved with Nazis to, um, shall we say, proper certain services for Nazis. Uh, it would seem that the Nazis, when they came into the United States and were secreted over from Germany at the end of World War II, came into certain places. One of them happened to be in and around, I would assume, you know, the epicenter might have been Manhattan Beach, I don't know. Uh, Parsons was there. Um, she was there. Um, again, did you, did you find any kind of connection between Crowley, perhaps, because uh, you had been in the United States. Is that correct? You had been there for a while? Many times he had traveled through right. the United States. So he was in the United States for the entirety of World War One, working as an uh, intelligence agent for the British government. Now, he dies in 1947, is that correct? Correct. All right. Uh, do you know if he was over uh, in the United States anywhere within, like, say, three years of his death? Not to my knowledge. He okay. was very frail and ill when he was older. Okay. He was a junkie. He was taking enough heroin to probably kill ten people. And uh, I never found any evidence that he was traveling, but... His later lives are very, his later life for me, researching it, was very vague. He was constantly moving. He had been kicked out. Once he got kicked out of Italy and France, uh, he never went back. But he was moving between Germany, England, and he might have been going to the United States under assumed names, but I never found evidence of that. Yeah, why would the assumed names, I mean, under travel? Was it just that he didn't want the notoriety, or was he paranoid? And that doesn't make him wrong necessarily, but did he feel he was at risk? I think it's both. I think that he was paranoid. I think he was—he knew he was always being surveilled as a person of interest. So he used names like, I think one was Oliver Hado and all these other pseudonyms to move. He would wear uh, wigs, makeup, etc. So I'm kind of sure he didn't mind doing that anyway. <laughs> yeah, I think that that was his thing. He always, you know, even when he was in the Golden Dawn, he would dress up in like Jaguar hats and makeup and take on the, he would always take on these different uh, personages. He was like I think one was Count Savarev when he was in London after leaving Cambridge. He took on the, uh, the bearing of a Russian count and dressed like that when he was traveling around the world. He and when he was in Egypt and the, he liked to he felt comfortable in Arabic countries. He would take on the count. The, I think one was Chola Khan or something like that was the name of one of the the personages he took on when he was traveling in Egypt and Algeria. So. He was very familiar with, you know, operating as a chameleon. And, uh, well, well, yeah. Do, you, do so. you have any idea whether or not he actually became these people? I mean, and I'm, I'm talking about supernaturally, you know, being way out there. I mean, did he, like, assume these people's lives or, or act in a different manner? I, I, not to my knowledge. I think that he took on, the, he, you know, he um, wore, the co wore the costume. And I didn't find any evidence that he was you know, literally trying to, you know, become this different person. I think that... All right, and did he ever set himself as a channeler at all? Absolutely. I don't think he was a channeler per se, but I think he tried to channel entities. Okay. And he was used as a scribe. So, um, you know, and I don't think a channeler, as in, like, he was put out to rent where three people would come and ask him questions, although that might have been the case. I didn't really get too much into his mm -hmm. ritual practice, although he was... He was definitely, uh, he was always trying to see wealthy people. He 
he ran out of his money when he was about 45 or 40. And so he was dependent upon gifts from uh, wealthy people. So he was, he was definitely trying to get more followers and he was always looking for money. So he probably, you know, there were times I've read some stuff about him doing readings and readings from his magical works to wealthy socialites, etc. So he was just shucking to get some money, huh? Yeah, he was, he was using the magic to get some money for sure. Later in his life, he was dependent upon his followers. Uh, they, they were always sending him money at his boarding house, which was, which was a nice boarding house in Hastings. That's where he passed away. And, uh, he was dependent upon their largesse. Well, that's probably one boarding house they would never want to go into, but yeah, I wouldn't <laughs> we'll pass on that. Uh, did you have uh, come across at all? Uh, again, this is more um, uh, voyeur stuff, but uh, did he and uh, Houdini ever uh, get a chance to talk to you? Now, can you repeat that? I didn't. Uh, did did I didn't he and Houdini ever hook up? Oh, Houdini, not to my knowledge. I didn't get any contact like that. All right, uh, but moving on, there is one. Um, a chapter of his life, I guess, in a group that I am not familiar with, although I, you know, I, I know, I understand uh, Thelematic writings, but what about the Abbey of uh, Thelema? That's a good question. So he started his own kind of abbey. His abbey was uh, located at the northern point of Sicily in a little bay. It was called the city's Cefalu, and he got a, a farmhouse and converted it into a place of magical training. He brought his paramour or his scarlet woman of the time, Leah Hersig, and uh, their nanny, who he eventually started a relationship with as well. So they both had his child. And uh, he uh, basically practiced magic. He invited people from all over the world to come and learn under his tutelage. And uh, he kept, you know, continued writing, etc. He was there from, the, I think, 20 to 20, 24 until he got kicked out by... Uh, Mussolini, and uh, he wrote a number of books. Like his, he wrote a book called Di "He Needed Money While He Was There," and he wrote a book called "The Diary of a, D a Drug Fiend," which was a, a not even, which was almost a straight biographical account of his time at the Abbey. And uh, you know, Thelema was his important word. It was the word, uh, the Greek word for will. Mm -hmm. And in the Kabbalah, the under the gematria where a word can be uh, translated into a number, its number is 93. So that's one of the most important uh, doctrines of his is the, the importance of the human will. And uh, so his time, you know, he's always followed. There are all kinds of writings about him traveling to the Abbey, but he brought all his followers there. They, uh, in the center of the Abbey, there was a huge ritual pentagram where they would hear, uh, have rituals. Drugs of all sorts were laid out on open plates for the use of uh, mm -hmm. people who stayed there. He also, everybody had a certain dress code. They had to wear magical robes, and uh, they had every day there were four adorations of the sun, so it was, he called it Libra Resh, so you'd stop at the, I think, morning, noon, sunset, and you'd have to wake up in the middle of the night to do these rituals. Um, so it was a ritual um uh, you know, environment and people would come from, you know, interested parties would come from London and France to come and stay there for, you know, whatever he could do. He, he thought of himself as a guru at that time. So, uh, and, you know, it was open, it was kind of a free love uh, environment and, you know, That's it's, a surprise, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he invoked his, his, his favorite 
entity who was AWOS. He called him his guardian angel, holy guardian angel. And uh, he he there's there's accounts in the book of all of the perversions that he involved he was involved in. But uh, he had one room in the abbey called the Chamber of Nightmares, and it was on the on the walls were painted all kinds of grotesque figures, sexually charged, and writings that were very perverse. And yeah, it's interesting that Kinsey, who was like the so-called sexologist, went right. there, mm-hmm. and uh, so did Kenneth Anger, who was one of Crowley's followers. He's actually yeah. still alive mm-hmm. today. Kenneth Anger actually had a showing at the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles last year of uh, a lot of Crowley, Crowleyanity, and it was apparently pretty popular, but uh, he's still around. And uh, anyway, he went there, Anger went there, and the locals had plastered over the, all the walls with white plaster. Anger pulled them all down and took pictures of it, and Lindsay, uh, Kinsey was there. Kinsey was interested in Crowley's homosexual writings and pornography that he wrote. It's so but, great uh, to know that he and his wife went ahead, did a sex-like study across the fifties to tell us how we should live. That's great. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the scary thing is that if Kinsey's influenced by Crowley, then, you know, you have to say all of his writings are suspect. I think there was a some lady, Judith Reisman, who who was a debunker of Kinsey and, uh, you know, just realized that a lot of his stuff was just complete fiction. Uh, here's what Crowley said about his time in the Abbey. He says, I care nothing for public opinion. I care nothing for fame or success. I am perfectly happy in my retirement, full leisure to work, freedom from all interruption. Chefaloo realizes my idea of heaven. So his idea of heaven was free love, drugs, uh, perverse pictures on the wall, and, uh, you know, it's pretty, it was pretty brutal. Well, gee, that was San Francisco in 1966, and he missed it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and there's like sacrifices. There's a count in my book of a yeah. of a sacrifice. One of the the girls who went there to to the abbey uh, witnessed the sacrifice of a cat, and she has a very detailed. I have a very detailed account of their uh, of their practices there. Uh, there were all kinds of things that you know the goats were sacrificed. Uh, mm-hmm. He accounted in his in his um, you know he said while well, his time in. Uh, Abby, at the Abbey, he said, "I've infected the round world with corruption." So he knew what he was uh, what he was doing. You know, uh, it, it, there are two movies that are very upsetting to me. I mean, The Exorcist pales in comparison to these two. One of them is Angel Heart. Are you familiar with that? Yeah, very familiar. Okay. And the other one is I, I will not watch that again. By the way, and I, I'm serious as a heart attack. I cannot watch that again. And um, the second one is Eyes Wide Shut. Very disturbing. Not because it's fantasy, because it's based on fact. Would you agree with that? Yes, absolutely. I would say uh, Eyes Wide Shut is for sure. I don't know about Angel Heart, but no. it's you know interesting. It's definitely yeah. No, I mean, it, I mean, for obvious reasons, I won't get into it. Not that I'm so lily white, but I mean, Angel Heart. I watched it twice. That was the end of it. I haven't seen it probably in 30 years or whatever it came out in the, in the early 80s. I was on the other day. My wife says, "By the way, you know, Angel Heart's on." I'm like, "Can we pass?" And she goes, "Absolutely." I'm not doing it again. Um, yeah, it's pretty dark. Yes, it is. It absolutely is. It was a, a well-done movie, but because of such, uh, you know, my soul didn't need it. Um, but Eyes Wide Shut is also very upsetting, not because it's fantasy, because it is the way things are uh, inside those circles that most Americans have no idea goes on. And in a way, it's good that they don't, but in a way, it's it's it's, it's sad that they, well, not sad, but it's dangerous that they, they don't because... I mean, that's what's going on out there. They have no idea. Here's where I'm going with this whole thing, William. I mean, 
when you get to that level, which I'm sure Crowley was at, I mean, you're talking about complete debauchery, and we're also talking probably about snuff rituals. Would you agree? Yes, absolutely. Uh, can you expand on that at all? Not, you have to, but I mean. Well, there's, there's not a lot of writing uh, of him writing, like, specific uh, times, but he refers to in a couple of his writings uh, to child sacrifice. Yep. Uh, there's also a lot of these blood rituals with cats and goats that were witnessed. He had a lawsuit in 1934 where one of his old friends accused him of a baby disappearing at Chuffaloo, and it started a uh, started a lawsuit. He sued her for for slander or uh, libel, and uh, or slander I think is the verbal. But uh, yeah. so these were these were you know bandied about. He. Uh, I think that one of the most perverse things that he ever wrote was the world's tragedy. It enters with him as a magician sacrificing a baby in front of a statue of Pan, who's a representation of the devil. Uh, so there's also his final book that was published posthumously was something called Magic Without Tears. Magic spelled M-A-G-I-C-K. K is the 11th uh, letter in the English alphabet, and 11 was a very important number. But in Magic Without Tears, he recounts these very strange occurrences. He went to somewhere in France where they had uh, a, some kind of interior atrium where they let loose a prostitute with a bunch of uh, wild rats. And then she, it's just really bizarre. He, she had some, she killed all the rats and then everybody engaged in an orgy. And then there's also accounts of him orgying all the time, basically. So this, the eyes wide shut scenario, especially with an elitist like Crowley. Crowley thought of himself as an aristocrat, which exactly. he was. Mm -hmm. And uh, he, had a, he had a different understanding in relation to, relationship to other people. He really didn't have much empathy for people lower of a lower class. So he was an English classicist. You know, and English was a England at that time and kind of still is today is a very class conscious. Oh yeah. Um, society. Mm -hmm. So he uh, he was really at the the cream at the top, and he recounts even back in his earlier days, you see the sadism, which, you know, exhibits itself for all these people, the people who are involved in occultism and the occult, uh, aristocratic occultists, but he said uh, he murdered a local cat. He says, of it, of it, I have been told a cat has nine lives. I deduce that it must be practically impossible to kill a cat. As usual, I became full of ambition to perform the feat. I could therefore caught the cat, having administered a large dose of arsenic, I chloroformed it, hanged it above the gas jet, stabbed it, cut its throat, smashed its skull, and when it had been pretty thoroughly burnt, drowned it and threw it out the window that the fall might remove the ninth life. In fact, the operation was successful. I had killed a cat. I remember that all the time I was generally sorry for the animal, but I simply forced myself to carry out the experiment in the interest of pure science. So, you know, you see that kind of uh, that cruelty towards animals, which is, you know, an indication yes, of... Uh, Psychopath. I mean, it's like one of the basic things. And uh, how, uh, old was, how old was he when he uh, did that? Can you tell from the? Uh, well, I think it was something like uh, fourteen or fifteen. So very early age. Uh, you know, he, he admits it, so it's it's an admission against self. Hey, William, what you said is right. I mean, um, we've had you know a couple of situations down here in Florida um, it, that you know I, I paid attention to because it was local, and. Um, Sometimes people will say, well, why should that be adjudicated as, you know, perhaps the death of a human being? And I understand how they would feel that way. But on the other hand, just as you said, that's a slippery slope into, shall we say, a complete uh, disregard for the human body. 
Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think it's the first step. You know, you I agree. see the death, the blood, and then you move, you know, move forward there. And that's if you're an occultist, you're always looking for the next thing. So, uh, I think he probably commit. Uh, you know, I don't have any evidence, but I think that you know, the the inclinations there, the blasphemies there, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, it's it's just it's all on the paper. So. Um, you know, there's there's stories, and I think Leah Hersig, who was one of his followers, that he abandoned in Paris to a sordid life of prostitution. She had a a diary that I poured through, and you know, she would refer to, "Oh, the guys are getting together tonight." You know, like this very menacing mm-hmm. reference to yeah. they're getting together. So you're not going to sleep really... anytime too early tonight, huh? <laughs> yeah, so it's a little scary. That's where things get a little chilly. Uh, we talked a little bit about his connection with his contemporaries at the time, literarily. Um, we talked about Yates. Um, and uh, Somerset Maugham, I, I guess, is somebody I didn't realize had any contact with him, but also H.L. Mencken, who I think probably is one of the best sarcastic writers in, in American history. Uh, and Huxley and Orwell, maybe we'll talk about a, a bit. But can we tackle Mencken? I mean, what in the world was... Uh, what was the connection there? That's a good question. I guess the, at a certain point in, point in his life, he was uh, cruelly in around 1922, was trying to buy a paper, and he was trying to find people to help him purchase. It was called the English, English Review. And Crowley was friends with a guy by the name of Frank Harris. For his, he was a lifelong friend. And these two were trying to get, get together to purchase it. So while they were in London, he dined with uh, Mencken, and Mencken refers to it as, uh, after meeting Crowley and his disciples in London, Mencken recalls Crowley is surrounded by a group, and this is what he says, surrounded by a group of idiots who regarded him as inspired and, and almost indeed a god. Uh, it was whispered in London that a certain amount of homosexuality was intermingled with the devotion of these disciples. I voted them as much as possible. But after I got home, and this is the U.S., uh, I think Mencken lived in... Um, Baltimore, wasn't he? Baltimore, yeah, yeah. Baltimore. But after I got home, he began bombarding me with mystical literature, all of it laboriously printed and brought out at his own expense. He became, in the end, the recognized head of all the English occultists and a figure of some consideration in the life of London. So, you know, these these people have, thank God they write a lot and leave, yeah. you know, but so I mean, they they give a good insight on on, on the, the character of uh, these other figures. Well, I would have been disappointed if Mencken had a different take, because I think Mencken was basically, you know, I'm sorry, but no bullshit. You know what I mean? Right, yeah. And I mean, so he could like, he have gone back and forth, but I mean, what you just stated, I mean, if, if it turned out differently, I could live with it. But because Mencken, what, what was what he was with such a really satirical, very sarcastic eye, and an accurate one as well, you know, I'm kind of glad that mm, it came out that way, if, if I could say that. Yeah, and most of, his, most of the people who I quote who saw him really didn't have a, a high opinion of him. They just thought he was a very interesting, a good talker, and an intelligent person. He was clearly an extraordinary personality, but none of them openly admitted to liking him. Mom called him, you know, thought he was dangerous and a liar, but he was an extraordinary good talker. Uh, well, you raise a really good point, though, William, and that is, now, and think, because I don't know if you thought in these terms, but you just raised a question within me, and that is, it looks like, if I got this right, I may not have. The U.S. writers were like they were buying an English crap. You know what I'm saying? I think I think that that might be uh, close to the truth. Yeah, they didn't. I just think a lot of them didn't have the the notion of uh, aristocracy, perhaps. Uh, I think a lot of them were poor, struggling writers. So, like Mom and Hemingway saw saw Crowley. He has a little vignette uh, meeting Crowley, but they 
they had kind of that American sensibility. I think they're not class, classist, yeah. mm-hmm. and some of his talk, and they, you know, they might not even be occultists. So for them, that's just an immediate turnoff. They they're interested in this person who writes and you know doesn't work and is involved in the kind of bohemian enclaves of Paris and London. But mm-hmm. uh, you know, they're they're not they're not interested. At least that's what they wrote. So you you know, who knows what happens? No well, I, yeah. I don't know. But now there's two writers also that, that he was involved with somewhat and, and you have in your in your work. Um, one of them, I feel, was definitely warning us about what was to come and was not happy about it. The other is pr- pretty much uh, criticized for saying the same thing but thinking like, well, you know, I'm above it all and you guys are just little proles. Um, although we've had somebody on, uh, John Bonanno, who has kind of done a defense of this guy and who I'm talking about is one, Aldous Huxley, who was telling us what was going to be, I thought in an imperious tone, is it to say, well, you know, you, you little, you know, I mean, prose really is attached to uh, Orwell, I know. But it's like Huxley's looking at us and saying, you know, you guys are little people, so love your servitude. Then we also flip over to, uh, you know, to whom you mentioned, Eric Blair, who is to us, you know, George Orwell, who was telling us the same thing too. Both of them were telling us about the world to come because they think they knew exactly what the plans were, you know, in quotation marks, whatever that means. But I think it's all coming true. Huxley, I have a little less severe attitude toward, although he seems imperious and may be so in his attitude and in his language. Uh, in a way, I think he was trying to tell us something, and I, and I think Orwell just flat out told us this is the world to come. Um, you can weigh in on, 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 you know, what on your feelings towards both writers, but as it... It, it uh, relates to Crowley. Um, well, I mean, was there a dynamic there? You know, well, uh, definitely Crowley met Aldous Huxley in Germany in uh, the early 30s, 1930s. Uh, he painted his portrait during his painting time. Crowley became a painter later in life, you know, in his 30s and 40s. And uh, I don't know where that uh, that painting is. It's probably in somebody's private collection. But Aldous Huxley was very familiar with Crowley. Uh, he knew of Crowley through um, his occult contacts. He was uh, Aldous Huxley rubbed elbows with Hubbard, and they spent time together in Ojai, California, mm-hmm. with uh, the Theosophic um, Messiah by the name of Matria. His his real name was Jiddu Krishnamurti. So, but oh, William, can you uh, fix a year on that? By the way, you know what that might have been time wise. Are we talking sixties, late fifties, or what? Fifties, yeah, fifties. Yeah. If I remember, yeah. I have to go back and get my notes. But uh, they were all. I mean. There are stories of in uh, Aldous Huxley's biographies about him and Hubbard spending nights together with, you know, not, you know, spending time discussing and spending, you know, being uh, part of the same social clique. So you have a, here you have a follower of Crowley who is part of the Agape Lodge, rubbing elbows with the guy. You know, Aldous Huxley wrote Brave New World. He also wrote a book, I think, in 1928 called Do What You Will, which is almost a direct recitation of Crowley's. Uh, dictum, which is "Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law." And by the way, and is Crowley the uh, author of that? Of "Do what you will"? No, that was Aldous Huxley. It was Huxley that said, "Do what thou wilt will be the whole of the law." No, 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 no. Uh, oh, uh, as far as uh, Crowley borrowed, kind of borrowed that phrase. It goes back. It goes back to Rabelais in his uh, play Gargantua. It also comes from the Hellfire Clubs of Sir Francis Dashwood in the late 18th century. Uh, the entrance to the Hellfire Clubs had uh, a French phrase that said, basically equated to "Do what you will." So, 
Crowley made that a do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law, which is 11 words, 11 syllables, made it the primary you know, dictum of his religion. All right. And he asked you the book rent, bookended all of his writings with do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. And then when he finished everything, he wrote love under law, love under will. And that was the, I'm sorry, that was what you're supposed to, when you address a fellow Crowleyite, you say, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. And they're supposed to respond, love under law, love under will. All right, the reason I bring that up is that I had never heard that dictum before until uh, there was a guest on Coast to Coast and a caller that came in, and Ian Punnett was on watch at the time, and a caller came in knowing that the other was Astro Agentism, right? And he said, um, do what thou wilt, and the other said, shall be the whole of the law. And Ian Punnett goes, whoa, 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 what happened there? <laughs> right. And that's the first time I heard it, but I wondered where it actually came from because it is a very seemingly, to me, a satanic free will doctrine. The thing that always bothered me about that, William, was that, you know, it's okay if everybody wants to do what that will, but if you're stepping on somebody else, that's not cool. And it doesn't seem to be part of it. It seems like a very selfish uh, philosophy. Agreed. I think it is. I think it, uh, you don't pay much heed to Anyone else? anybody else. It's not, uh, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's more of like follow whatever you want, follow your true will over everything else. So, Agreed, it's very selfish and, you know, egocentric. And I think Crowley lived it, and the wreckage he left behind by doing his own will was incredible. I mean, he abandoned his uh, scarlet women whenever he wanted. He would take other people's ideas and money and then betray them. He was, uh, you know, his followers, he, he, two of them went insane. The two of the scarlet women that he had, uh, her was Kelly, and the other was... Uh, Demiramar, they both ended up in a mental institution. One went back and killed herself. Uh, you know, she, he abandoned one of them to prostitution in Paris. So, by doing his will, uh, there are a lot of people who were, you know, negatively affected by it for sure. Agreed. And you know, when I hear that, that's what I think about. It. It's like, well, that's just great. But I mean, if you're stepping on anybody else, uh, how do we deal with that? And apparently, it's not their concern. And I think that's where you get in this like uh, exclusive. Um, aristocratic, let the peasants eat, you know, cake kind of thing. Um, And with that, I want to ask you one thing. And I I don't want to take too long because we want to get to some of the other things that I'm sure people have been hanging on to to listen to. But, you know, that kind of stuff, not that the United States has become any different. It's, you know, we've become sullied as well over 200 years. But that kind of, yeah, you know, I mean, in different elitism, like, oh, did, did our carriage run over a kern? Oh, what a shame. I mean, it seems to have found resonance for centuries, if not millennia, in Europe. And it seems to be somewhat connected to this monarchical thing about, oh, all right, we're in the bloodline of Jesus or whatever, but we are, you know, endowed by divine right to rule. Uh, so, so distilling this down to a single question, William, and that is, is there, re- is there a reason why this seemed to come out of Europe? Is that the attitude? and everyone else is basically crap? Yeah, I think so. I think that's one of the reasons why this co- people fled to this country is to get away from that, that whole bloodline notion, the, you know, uh, you know, because I'm bored of this, born of this family, I'm better than you. And, and always be better than you, yeah. Right, they just are just because they were born. I mean, and, you know, that's kind of grown up in this country. It didn't used to be as prevalent, but now that there's old aristocratic bloodline families here that have been around for generations, you see the you know, that, that attitude has crossed the pond. You know, you have 
people who've been to Yale for three generations or Harvard and, mm-hmm. you know, they think they're just innately better. And, and Curley is much, has said as much. He thought that the ideal society for him was a feudal society. He didn't, um, you know, say any cast any aspersions upon it where most Americans would be horrified by that. But he said, despite all its drawbacks, there was never a better social system than the feudal so far as it derived from the patriarchal. So he had a, you know, male-centered feudal society, and that's what Europe grew out of, out of after the Dark Ages, that was it, or in the Dark Ages, was a feudal, you know, divine right of kings, our children are going to be kings, etc., and this country, the United States, was built as a direct, you know, revolution against that notion, where, you know, we have elected officials, and we're supposed to be, you know, a meritocracy, etc. And yet- supposed to be. I know, and we get affected as well. It just comes <laughs> in the bloodline. Um, yep. I'm going to jump ahead if we can um, uh, to, uh, like I said, probably some of the subjects that folks are most uh, earnest in, you know, into, in wanting uh, to hear. And there are two things. One, I'll, I'll probably reverse it from the way that we uh, had agreed. I get to do that because it's my show. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, but, okay, let's, let's talk about where we are now. I think you and I are in agreement, and I'll let you articulate that, that understanding Scripture and understanding human behavior and what you've seen historically, comparing it to what's in Scripture. Uh, the New World Order is very real. I think we could say it, was prob- it is probably um, uh, the, the architect is Satan, and we're getting kind of close, I think, to a certain time. Um, can you tell me what you think the New World Order is and why Crowley had some attachment to that? That's a good question. I mean, I think that the the real push forward for the new world order and the people who are interested in the re uh, ordering of the global society was the events of 9/11, and uh, I think that that put into place so many institutional uh, barriers against our rights. Uh, it created a a cultural a culture of real mind control and. Uh, it started off global warfare. It wasn't just Afghanistan or Iraq. There's assassinations taking place. There's uh, bombings, etc. Um, uh, a culture of fear. So you see that this was a, a structured event that was intended to, have, you know, have an effect. And it was, uh, and you see the social striation that take place. I mean, they're trying to just people are trying to destroy the middle class. They're actually getting rid of a lot of our. Uh, infrastructure as far as from an economic basis they don't really you know the people who are the head of the new world order really don't care if it's a fuel state so you see you know the the have-nots growing and the haves you know having even more and so uh in the events of 9-11 there are direct uh lines and numerical attachments from that event back to Crowley so I didn't know it at the time but what I what in Crowley's system the numbers 11 77, 93, and 175 are all Crowley numbers. Uh, 11 was his uh, number of, uh, you know, uh, pestilence, and it was a number that he used frequently in all of his uh, rituals, and uh, he refers to it frequently. So 11 and then 93 were the two numbers for Thelema and uh, love, which uh, in, in Greek is agape. So those both equate to 93 in the gematria. Uh, it's also the number of the he- in Hebrew, the number of his chief spirit was Iwas, and that equates to 93. That's who he received uh, the Book of the Law from. Uh, the number 77 are, is an important number for him as well. That number is 
the number of uh, the septenary, which he called, you know, an essential number. It's also the 77 numbers of the devil in uh, Sandor LaVey's Satanic Bible. Uh, so you'll see that number reference there. And he said that 77 is the, you know, it's a mystic number. It also equates to the, the name Oz, O-Z, so that kind of puts you in kind of Frank L. Baum territory, theosophist oh, yeah. um, information. And 175 was a number that in his system, when he systematized all of his writings into the AA, uh, he gave each book a number. And book 175 was a ritual where you bind yourself to a deity. And, uh, you know, you can imagine what deity people are binding themselves to with 175. But uh, so those numerical codes are there and a lot of people don't know that and they've you know people who have been studying 9-11 are not aware of that i wasn't really aware of it either but uh, that's part of the trick of the event and then uh, you know you see the new world order and, and crowley's one of his things that he repeated a lot was the slave shall serve and so you kind of see this kind of new slave state coming into view i think john coleman the guy who's written the committee of 300 he also references the notion of a new feudal society mm -hmm. uh so you know, it's going to be, you know, disease, war, famine, until there's very few people left. Well, uh, uh, and it's aristocratic. I mean, you want to see this, he wanted an aristocratic revolution. But the thing is, um, folks, even Christians, would uh, scoff, and they do scoff, uh, at the mention that there could be this kind of concerted uh, numerology attached to that event. Because most people think, you know, that 19 Arab hijackers did all this stuff, and that's all there is to it. Um, but my point to you is, and we talked about this, you know, off, uh, off mic, and that is if you're dealing with the master conspirator, and I think we are, I think you agree we are, I mean, all this stuff to me, and understand my phraseology here, amongst those characters, as we sit with the leaders, I mean, they'll laugh at it. It's a wink and a nod. It's like, well, we told you we are going to do it. Don't you get it? Right. Yeah, I agree. I mean, they there was a lot of hints leading up to the event that these things were going to happen. So uh, for me, you know, I do believe in uh, the cosmology of the Christian cosmology. I do believe in that there is a devil. I believe in evil spirits, and I believe in good spirits. I believe in angels and God, and Jesus Christ was the Messiah. Mm -hmm. But uh, unfortunately, we're in a world of good and evil. There's not. It's not all, uh, you know, prosperity Christianity or you know, 501c3 Christianity, there's unfortunately people who have made the decision to uh, follow their own will, not God's will. And uh, Crowley was one of them, and I see that attachment from Crowley into 9-11 and the New World Order, and I think I pretty much lay out a strong evidentiary foundation for that fact. Mm -hmm. I consider it a fact from what I've read and researched. Because, so, because you attach this to a Crowley, not that Crowley was the architect for the actual uh, event, yeah, I'm not saying he's an architect right, at all. Right, exactly. He's well, part, think, a part inspiration. And in his writings, it's one of those things that pops up from beneath to give people a clue, if they're looking for it, that this thing has been decided upon and it's evil in its nature. And right. for those of us who don't get it, we'll all think, you know, whatever mainstream news tells us. But then we get to another thing that's much, much deeper than that subterranean level from which, you know, th these numbers popped up, and that is, we are truly, truly confronted with an ominous and actually, Jack Kennedy said it best, a monolithic conspiracy that is going on. And I really do believe, and I'm going to have, let you have the last shot on this, that we understand that Satan's 
are capable of it. We understand that this will only last a time, and that good will obviously conquer evil for all time. But we're going to go through a really rugged period, and we are dealing with what we could call the most powerful entity in and around Earth until an appointed time. So this numerology then, although a lot of people think it's a province of whack jobs, is not at all, but it's kind of almost like an like a anti-celebration, if you will, of Christendom and Jesus Christ. Um, and uh, like I said, I'll let you have um, the last shot on that, William. Go ahead. Well, I agree with that. I mean, I think that uh, it's, uh, it's a herald of, you know, a kind of new dark age, people who are willing to, uh, you know, make war against their own people. And I think that your point about in my position and from my spiritual view that, you know, this is something that's been talked about for since since Christ. And there's, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, revelations and, and Crowley was very familiar with revelations. And he himself wrote in one of his books that uh, what nobody before me has done is to prove the existence of extra human intelligence. And my magical record does this. I err in interpretation, of course, but it's impossible to doubt that there is somebody there, somebody capable of combining events as Napoleon forms his plans of campaign and possessed of powers unthinkably vast. So, you know, you're up against uh, great wickedness in high places, just like Paul said. So Mm -hmm. I'm in full agreement. But you think that I like what you've done, though, um, if you're okay with this, and that is, yeah, listen, you listen, I listen to Patriot stuff and all that other stuff. And it's like, okay, they're doing this, they're doing that. You know, maybe one day we can just do like a, a, you know, a Bunker Hill thing again. No, sorry, folks, that's done with. But the thing is, and I'm, you know, I'm sorry to say it for those who don't believe on, on Jesus Christ, and it's going to be a bummer for them, okay, fine, but maybe you just want to, like, tune in because, honestly, the victory is ours. But we have to go through this period. But as far as I can see, even if I didn't believe in Jesus, I'm looking at what they got, you know, quote, they got, as far as um, – <laughs> uh, weapons of uh, mass destruction and what we got, and we're not going to have a fair fight. Um, and I think it's important that what you, what you did was to say, look, this is what's happening. It's hard for a lot of people to countenance, even Christians. But what you broke down was, and that is, look, here, here is what they've done. This is their MO. And then numerology, which, of course, is also very much Christian because, you know, it goes on both sides of the, uh, the register. Um, and I think I'm, you know, that I, I'm glad you did that. I was kind of like wondering, okay, where are you going with this? But you're willing at least to come out, William, and say, look, understand who we're fighting against and understand that this numerology isn't a joke and, and what that represents and uh, by all means finish out. I agree. I mean, I think it's not a joke. It's very serious. I didn't really like uh, writing the book. I didn't like putting it out there. Uh, I... I know that some people will mock it and deride it or just straight out ignore it. Well, that means you're doing I, the right thing. <laughs> well, I understand That's that, good. but I, I, I had to do it out of conscience because I knew, I knew what I understood and nobody was saying anything. So uh, I think it's the most important element of the 9-11 isn't it's – I mean, it's all important of the, the political, cultural effect, but at the spiritual and occultic influence is – extremely important because it created this climate of fear and uh, you know it's important for people to come back to repent and to go back to God and Jesus Christ and read the the King James Bible and uh, do the work yourself and realize that there's somebody out there who wants to degrade you and wants to um, 
harry you and really you know the war of evil against humanity uh has always been there and even hitler was a follower and acknowledged you know cruelly and you saw his war against humanity and what what resulted from that and i don't think people should be naive of what can happen frankly because i think that you know there were other people naive about what hitler was capable of and the results were he even turned against his own people yeah uh, you know the nero option and he flooded the 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 Berlin subway subway where 300,000 of his own people were and just flushed them all away. I mean, he was, he was a monster. And so you don't want a cruelly level monster to ever be in control. Unfortunately, they're attracted to power and they take it by force and, you know, but, uh, don't be a naive Christian is really, I think, uh, well, my general message is there's evil out there and there's all, but there's also good, which is good news. So there's a way to, you know, overcome this, these dark ages that we're, I think we're in right now. And, you know, and, and uh, some critics of us would say, well, uh, you guys don't care because you're going to go to heaven, so you don't mind what happens. No, we do mind what happens, but just being realistic, and even anybody who might even be agnostic or atheist, if there's any such thing, would turn around and say, look, if you really want to get into a duke, I mean, this isn't back in the days of Rome. I mean, you both don't have spears. You know, <laughs> they got stuff that we can't even imagine. And so a fair fight is not going to happen, but that's the way it was supposed to be. Because obviously, you know, those who follow Jesus Christ are not of this world. And we are not called to shed blood in any kind of advance of any kind of kingdom. And that is just, there's another day coming. Uh, this one has been foretold to end the way it is. And I think we're seeing, uh, you know, I, I don't know how you feel, and you're going to tell me, but I mean, I think we're seeing, you know, it's not the end of the world, because the world will last a millennium after the trip. But we're seeing, I think, the birth pangs, the very nasty birth pangs, of a period that um, is foretold in Revelation. I agree. I, I'm, I totally agree. I just see it. I think that they've been passing off, at least the presidency of the United States, the United States goes from one occultist to another. I mean, you know, the the names may change, but Obama is not no. the savior. He was a complete liar and a fraud. He's still, still a fraud, but uh, unfortunately things really haven't changed for the better. No, and I don't you, think can't, there was you any... can't be anything else and, and expect yourself to be in the, in the White House. Those people have bought and sold another uh, whole uh, situation with trying to tell Christians that, you know, you know, Jesus didn't really want us to get involved in this kind of stuff. I mean, that was not what he wanted us to do. And so you're right. I mean, you know, we, oh, do we like Obama? No. Do we like Bush? No. We don't like them. I mean, they're pharaohs and they'll do what they do. Um, but they are not, you know, they're allowed, but they are not blessed by, um, by Jehovah. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's unfortunate, and the the sad thing is that there's so many Christians out there who pledge their allegiance to these people, and uh, you know they're nothing but they're not even Christians. They they they're against, I think, yeah. what God God's will is. You know, it's man's will. So, just going back to Crowley, I think that if like the the spiritual implications of Crowley's doctrines of the human will is the human will is tends to be very corrupt. It's uh you know, full of greed and lust and uh, ignorance. And, you know, that's when things get scary, is if you're making a doctrine based on the human will, uh, for me it's, uh, you know, you're opening yourself up to a lot of uh, evil actions. Um, William, good point. And honestly, um, a lot goes on from here. Uh, bodies get destroyed, but souls don't. There is infinity for all of us. It, I guess it just depends on where you wind up. But um, 
the work that you did, and um, we're going to talk about this more because there's so much more to go on, and hopefully uh, we can get on maybe with a live show with Randy and the Watchmen because it, it, it really means so much more, and people I would like to have come in and ask questions, which they can't do in this situation. I pre- appreciate the time that you have given us, and really it is a very, very expansive topic. It is very impacting, and in a sense it is a little bit, shall we say, not pleasant, but it's the reality, and I think that's what we have to gird ourselves for, and having done that, uh, perhaps the hard landing won't be as hard as we think it will be. Um, William, once again, uh, your website? Uh, the website is occult911.com, and uh, you can re- get the book on Kindle if you're interested. If you have any questions, my email address is www.occult911.gmail.com. And, folks, uh, we, we might pop up again on another site, and also William has done other interviews. And I don't mind, William, uh, do you want to tell people where uh, you've also spoken? I think I, I did uh, one. For, I did two for Oracle. I did one for Rob Chowda and Charlie Giuliani. If you're interested, and then there's a local LA Talk line here. The guy's name was Extract, where you know the information or what I imparted was a little different, maybe a little different than this show. So you, people might find that interesting. No problem. Listen, I thank you for being with us, and I think we're going to talk again. I, I assume we're going to catch you down the road. But thanks a lot for visiting. Think it'll be great. All right, here we are for round two of Visigoth Raw and Live. And we have with us, once again, he was on last month, and the bad news was it didn't really get recorded. The good news is somebody did get the last half, and we'll put that audio up later. But with us again is William Ramsey. Uh, He's the author, and I guess the way you best know him, of the book Prophet of Evil, Alistair Crowley, 9-11, and the New World Order. Uh, but now he's been working on documentaries and delving deeper and deeper into the occult, I guess, uh, ramifications, if you will, and uh, connections uh, between uh, the masters of evil and the rest of us, the little people. So, William, thanks for coming back. We appreciate it. Uh, I've been looking forward to this for uh, uh, quite some time. Great. Thanks for having me back on. I'm glad to be here. All right. Um, and also, folks, I'll, I'll probably tack on that uh, lost audio that has been found. And uh, believe it or not, William, the gentleman, uh, and you never know who really anybody is, but the gentleman who uh, saved that uh, has a tag of Carl Reiner. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so, Carl, give our best to Mel, and, and we'll go on with what is I like Carl Reiner. I actually just saw him recently, and it's a mad, 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 mad world. Oh, so, he, uh, do you remember that movie? Oh, yes. That's a fantastic movie. I didn't even know it was Carl Reiner. I, he was very trim back in that, those days, but uh, he looked good. So hopefully, Carl Reiner, thank you very much. Yeah, you all were. Okay, great. I'm a fan. Uh, now, some of the best straight-out funny humor without getting blue in any crap. That was good stuff. Yeah, Mad Mad World. Uh, so now, to uh, the greater gravity of what we're going to talk about, uh, you've been working on some documentaries, and I think you might want to talk about them to a certain extent. They're not necessarily finished. They're still in the hopper. But uh, you're going to tease them a little bit, but also tell us uh, what has led you to go into this. And let me ask you, William, 
uh, when you get into this kind of stuff, one, do you find it almost like quicksand? And two, do you find it, uh, shall we say, somewhat troublesome to one's soul? Yeah, I would say I would say both. I mean, I think that it's hard for me to get away from it because of my I was I'm a, I consider myself a pretty naive person, so learning these deeper things that I never learned in school and college and, you know, uh, not being a, a member of any occult secret society, once I realized that so much of this is taking place in front of your face, uh, you know, that's it's amazing to me to see how prevalent it is in our political leaders and our culture, you know. So uh, it's definitely like quicksand, and it's definitely uh, troublesome because you see how how much it really does suffuse everything in the, you know, what you've been taught as an ostensibly Christian religious environment. And this is a very general question, and we don't have to stay long here. But the thing I think I find troublesome is in the supposed really, really, really Christian sex. Um, they don't, they're not quite putting it together. It, and, I, and I'll say this, I mean, it's like they consider Satan asleep, like he's not working. Uh, we haven't seen him lately, so I, I don't really think it's a problem. And they have no idea. It's one of those things about the forest or the tree that it's all around us, but they're not putting together that, one, there'll be a great deception. Two, uh, he, it will come unto us like one of us. And I, and I think you see it, and I, and I see it, and a lot of people have have. They don't have to all be Christian. I mean, they can deal with it if they want to in a secular sense. But for you and me and for those of our kind, uh, you know, they're not getting it. And it's like, you know, there's this big wave coming over us, and everybody's going, like, what's the problem? Why is everybody running from the beach? Right. Yeah, and I, I agree with that. I mean, I have people in the Christian community who are leaders of uh, churches in L.A. who don't believe in, in you know, the, the spiritual, I mean, it's strange that they believe in the spiritual world of God, but they don't believe in the spiritual world of demons or the devil, you know. And to me, that's an, an integral part of the New Testament. So, and Christ talked about it. I mean, this, that's what's also unusual and interesting to me is that it was a central part of his time on earth was not just doing good and teaching other people, but also staring down and, and uh, speaking out against the evil people. I mean, some of his statements against Jerusalem and the individuals there, and, I mean, there's the meeting with Satan where he's tempted, uh, with, you know, three trials among other trials, and it's like, you know, what, what, uh, and, and, and then it suffuses all of Paul's writing, Peter's writing, everything like that, so uh, can't why can't you see it today? It's almost like they're trapped in looking back in 2,000 years of history instead of seeing what's happening now. I mean, I think Orwell said uh, wisely, among his other wise statements, is the hardest part of looking at things is seeing what's right in front of your nose, you know? And uh, for me, that's really it. It's like, why look back? Can't you see the evil and the, the, the occultism and Satanism in everyday life and to detect it and be on the watch for it, you know? So um, it seems strange to, you know, it's like they're bridging you know, essential elements of the New Testament and Old Testament. I mean, there's all kinds of witchcraft references in the Old Testament as well, and, uh, spirit, you know, evil spiritual events and priests of Baal, etc. And, uh, you know, it's uh, it's kind of like the Jeffersonian view of the Bible. Well, I'm going to take this and just say Christ is a moral teacher, and, you know, now, you know, there's not some other dimension or world out there that... You know, he's drawing powerful, powerful, although I'm going to go to heaven, you know, which is in a right. thump, which they believe in. So it's some other place, but they don't see 
you know, or perceive in their hearts that, you know, there's something else going on that people can draw, you know, power from, from the dark side, I guess. Yeah, I'm not going to beat to death the fact that I think people are um, more inclined to listen to their teachers than they are to read for themselves and to, to realize that, uh, you know, the Bible was made for you to read and digest. It was not, you know, high, high uh, polluting language. It was street language. And right. um, uh, it's about time that you get into the Word and let the Holy Spirit guide you rather than go to church and have someone tell you the way things are. I mean, this is the whole laugh, if you will, about the Catholic Church that, and to this day, if you go to a Catholic Church, for the most part, you don't find any Bibles in the pews. Uh, yeah. Of course, you know, a, a millennia ago or more, uh, one of the problems was is that they wanted to read the Word and they weren't allowed to because the priest would break it to them the way that he wanted to. Uh, the Protestant religion had the Bible's problem is they don't read them. Uh, but, but, but in both situations, uh, if you believe in Jehovah, you believe in the Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, then you should be able to read it. And if you pray for illumination, and I'm sorry to use that word in a sense, but you will get it. Um, I think that has stopped because people are enamored of personalities, whether it's their local preacher or whether it's a, a jerk like Osteen on TV or Benny Hinn and the rest of these idiots, these snake oil salesmen, and they'll go with that. You know? Uh, unfortunately, they don't know a lot better. I mean, a lot of it's, uh, you know, cult of personality. And, you know, I, I think that you're absolutely right. The real Christianity takes place between you and the Bible and the world, word and prayer. And that's really uh, it. You know, I don't know. Church should be almost a corollary to your Christian walk through life, at least for me. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm not saying that church is invaluable. I'm just saying that that's where you go to, to be in fellowship with other people and hopefully you know, you're educated from the Word instead of from the pastor. Pastor craft is a lesser form of priest craft that takes place in the, you know, priest craft is like the, or rabbi craft, I guess, it's, you know, it's probably applicable as well. But, you know, if you rely on somebody else as an intermediary instead of, you know, listening to the Word itself, I think you're doing yourself uh, a disservice, or a person is doing himself a disservice. Sorry to say, but it's gotten to the point, and I liken it to a, a Patriot broadcasting where you're supposed to get the truth, and that is, if you really tell the truth, if you really know it, first of all, most of these idiots don't. But some do, and won't, do, you know, and won't go there, like Jones and such. But it's like that with the, with the preachers, too. If they tell the people the truth, uh, they're going to lose congregation. Agreed. Therefore, the whole enterprise goes down, and boy, doesn't that suck. Uh, I, I'm sorry, but, you know, I never really saw in the Bible where we had that mega churches and all this other stuff. In fact, I, yeah, I didn't see that either. No, I, I thought it was pretty much like cells. And if you had elders, uh, fine. And I thought, for the most part, one would uh, one would be rotated around to uh, to uh, give a homily. Uh, yeah, I won't go into the whole thing, but I think something went very much wrong, where bigness and greatness seems to be more holy, and that is absolutely the opposite. So, yeah, I agree with that. I also have found myself, like, since I've been getting into the cold and saying, hey, look, this person is uh, really not that great. They're deceiving you. You know, if you melt down people's golden calves, uh, they will be angry. So, and those are those are primarily Christians. You know, if you say this guy's not a Christian, and you know they really think that he's out there protecting them, I've seen some. I've seen them turn and go after me pretty, pretty in a pretty nasty way. You know, so. And, and I'll just say this, and I'm, I wanted to respond by all means, but we'll get into the uh, the heart of uh, the reason why you're here. And that is one of the things I, I find interesting is that in the, in the Ten Commandments it says, "Have no other gods before me." 
It may not be gods with a capital G, but Jehovah was telling us, yeah, there are others out there. You know, and they can work some kind of mojo is what I'm getting, but, you know, that's not me. I'm the true God. I mean, but there are out there. And the other thing is, do you remember, when was it? Was, was it in uh, at Paul's epistles where, uh, you know, help me out on this, but didn't Paul cast out the demon of, of some woman who was a, yeah, she was a fortune teller. A fortune teller, yeah. And they weren't, like, shall we call them, the chamber of commerce of the town pissed off because yes. you, just, you just destroyed their, their enterprise. Their, yeah, the, uh, the goose that laid the golden egg. All right. Yes. Okay, so my point is, yes, people can divine. It's true. Even in the Old Testament or whatever. I mean, I, I don't think the Lord ever said, they're not telling you the truth. It's like, but why do you go to them? Right. And if you hold well, up, good. No, no, you're right. I mean, there's what, Saul and the Witch of Endor or whatever. We went to raise the dead. I mean, so these are Old Testament things that you're you're not supposed to do, even though you may be able to raise spirits of, you know, people who've moved to the other side. But, you know, it's uh, forbidden. You know. All right, no problem. I mean, nobody said this isn't true. The thing is, why do you go there? Don't you trust me for, for your life? So, uh, all right, now, you're hitting a lot of heads, buddy. <laughs> I, I am. Oh, with, with the with the uh, the documentaries you got coming. Oh yeah. yeah oh, so. good for you. Uh, so I tell you what, line them up and and go at it whatever which way you wish to. Well, I mean, I think that. When I got led back to Curly from nine eleven, it opened me up to the much broader. Uh, you know, terms and things that people are saying that are sub rosa that somebody who's not in the occult, you know, wouldn't under would would not be able to understand. So I really have been studying uh political leaders and, you know, the Hollywood. So I've seen a lot of Hollywood. Like I have another one Hollywood too that's gonna come out at some point. So I'm working on a variety of projects. I don't have just one. I just, you know, compile these things and in my in my spare time try to which I don't have a lot of, um try to compile them. So you know, I realized that, like, Obama is a straight-up occultist, and so is uh, Bush. I mean, they're and, and, the, and the father, the Bush Jr. and father. I mean, they're both skull and bones guys. So, you know, I see them, and then when I study their public statements, there's many things that they're saying that um, are are meant for, my, for a smaller audience. There's definitely, like, an exoteric and an esoteric uh, analysis and they played that that those cards very well that the public you know who they don't want to have understand could uh, you know will have to, uh, basically if they don't have an occult understanding they wouldn't see it so you know I've been studying them and you know I, I've tried to compile and show and you know the other thing is not only are they occultists but there's all types of media disinfo and misinfo and just straight up control of the media that prevents people from seeing behind the curtain to see the wizard and uh, so that's just like I tried to discern really what's going on and compile evidence that shows that, you know, these are uh, certainly not Christians and certainly not people out for, you know, the betterment of society. They, they believe in kind of the same kind of view that Crowley does in a lot of ways. Uh, they really don't care about uh, the poor. They are having elitist sensibility. Uh, a feudal, they don't mind a feudal state. And uh, they're pretty ruthless and, uh, you know, selfish so I think that you know I put together these, these films and these videos will you know back up my my opinions for that so you know I'm doing a cold Obama and then I went through and, and analyzed a lot of the speeches that Bush had made 
and uh, I just discerned, and Bush and his father have made, and people are familiar with, you know, the, the famous speech that George Bush made September 11, 1991, about, you know, a new world order, and we will, and, uh, you know, all that. But there are other speeches that he's made, that the, the father has made and the son have made, that, you know, the general public should be made aware of, and, and their interpretation, at least in my interpretation of what they said, should be uh, public knowledge. All right, uh, and again, I, I don't know which one you want to address first because you have some audio uh, bites, and so I'm going to set up to you as, as far as the order uh, in which you want to. And, uh, well, let's talk about Obama. I mean, Obama's the current president, president, and we can go back through. Some of these things have been covered by other people, but you know, I just wanted to, uh, you know, bring him, bring it up. You know, people. Do. The thing is, you get a really good idea of character when you put together all of these clips that I did. And you see, you know, what this person really is about, not this public image of hope and change and uh, these kind of Soviet-style propaganda efforts that, you know, his handlers have put together. Um, so, you know, I just wanted to show that there is, and it's kind of a theme that you that you have uh, pressed upon that, you know, these guys are, are puppets, they're figureheads, they're, they're part of a larger system, I think. And... Uh, you know, I think that that's the, the case for any presidential unit, but it's good to see the, the, the team of thinkers that's behind, you know, the presidential um, figurehead or facade, I guess. So, you know, for example, in Obama, I have a clip of Obama where he talks about his, uh, his handler, who is uh, none other than uh, Brzezinski. Uh, so he talks about uh, Dr. Brzezinski, I have a clip from 2007 where he says, I cannot say enough about his contribution to our country. He's one of our most outstanding scholars, one of our most outstanding thinkers. He has proven to be an outstanding friend and someone who I've learned an immense amount from. So when he says that, you're you're talking about a guy who, you know, has written two books with occult themes. Uh, a lot of people don't know that, but the Between Two Ages is very similar in Crowley's view and other occultists' view where, you go from an old age to a new age. So he wrote, uh, you know, the Between Two Ages, I think it's called, the whole title is about the technotronic era. But uh, if Brzezinski is Obama's handler, that's a, that's extremely important. And uh, it shows what how this continuum of change that's taking place in the United States is being handled by a technocratic kind of wizard behind the scenes. So, you know, in... Uh, <clears throat> In Brzezinski's Between Two Ages, which was written in 1970, he says the technotronic era involves the gradual appearance of a more controlled society, such a society would be dominated by an elite unrestrained by traditional values. And I think you can see that is pretty evident in the last 10 years. And that's, it's important to see the continue. People expect to change in, from Obama, but that's really the, the, the stable sense of values that's happened between both, part, both uh, presidents and parties. So... Uh, you know, you know, you make a good point. I'm sorry to interrupt you, and please stay with that thought, William. I don't want you to leave that. But when I hear you say this, you know, the one thing I think we have to think about is that we supposedly elect the president. Uh, actually, it was more a manipulated selection. But forget that. Right. Even though you elect a president, so to speak, it's like uh, with with uh, egg rolls, you get all these, and that right. is all the unelected officials that compiling in as cabinet members and advisors. And if you take a look going back to, geez, the late 70s, 
there's characters that always seem to be around, no matter who's in the Oval Office, and that would go for Kissinger, Brzezinski, right. uh, Haig. Um, Gates. Yeah, I mean, there's always... Gates, Gates switched part. I mean, he's, in the, he's on the, the Republican Party. He's handling the uh, Department of Defense still. I mean, how odd is that? <laughs> I, I know, and the thing is, nobody picks up on this stuff. But, yeah. you know, you, you quote, elect the president... But with all that, you know, with that, with that vote, supposedly, you get all these characters compiling in. In essence, this country is run by unelected officials. Think about it. I would say that they find the guy that they want to run, and they support them, and they have all the experience uh, operating the mechanics of the government from the central uh, area of D.C., and uh, that's the way it was. I mean, look at Cheney and uh, Rumsfeld. That team, they've been loitering around Washington for 50, 40 years. I mean, I mean, and you know, he was Cheney is essentially the de facto president in a lot of ways. And Rumsfeld, these guys are masterful operators. I mean, incredible, incredible skill, very intelligent. And, and yeah, without a doubt. And of course, aided. I mean, the fact that they never go away uh, strikes me as interesting. You know, it's like Cheney's coming back out again. It's like, why are we, why are we listening to you? What in the world do you have to tell us? I mean, but the, these yeah. characters just don't go anywhere. And the advisors, which we always overlook, are there. Right. And I'm not saying that they influence the president so much to the point where he might do something differently. I'm just saying that there's handlers there to make sure what has to get done gets done. My point is, if a president ever uses his own volition and it isn't in the, in the game plan, the, the, uh, the script he signed on for, that's when you wind up dead. Right. That's exactly what happened to Kennedy. I mean, he had his handlers and people who were around, and he started, uh, you know, breaking things up, and they got him, you know. You know, and so. I'll tell you what, uh, you know, with the, with the parallels of Lincoln and Kennedy, look, they were son of a bitches. You have to be, to be running in the game. That's mm-hmm. the way it goes. The rough and tumble, you know what it's about. You know, and it does take somebody to do that stuff. However, if there's anything I think that the American people endear themselves to, for those who kind of, like, get it, and that is both those guys couldn't go along with the game plan, and somewhere along the line, I believe, conscious or whatever you want to call it, took them over, and when they balked on uh, executing the script, they were executed in turn. I agree, and, you know, they may not, not, not have known the entirety of what this going to be requested of. Right. Kennedy might not have known. You know, maybe he was, he was young. He might have been very naive. I mean, he, uh, for as much as he was, you know, he was he was not as connected as people might think. I mean, he's from a, a rich and powerful family, but, you know, he was divorced from a lot of the other powerful players there, and he had also gone through World War II and seen, you know, so much death and destruction that the, you know, Vietnam War in Cuba may have just seen, like, I don't want any more of this. He had had friends die. His brother had died. And, uh, you know, they wanted to keep going and, you know, plunder and kill, and he didn't seem to want to have anything to do with that. So, yeah. So we give them marks, at least, for having a change of heart. If they couldn't do it, I think that's why, in a way, I look at them more endearing. It's like, look, you guys, like I said, you guys are SOBs. You knew what it had to be, and you decide, no, I can't do this. And for that, I give them, you know, a, a, a respect. Uh, yeah. But, you know you, you know, you live by it, man. You die by it. You knew what you were signing on to. Yeah, I mean, it's it's tough. I mean, I think uh, Kennedy really did try. I mean, he... Uh... He tried to tell the tell the truth and tried to do the right thing. You know, Federal Reserve, CIA, 
Uh, he gave that speech, I mean, unwisely against, uh, you know, to a bunch of people from the media, but they're all probably controlled. So, you know, I don't know if that's the way I want, you know, he enlist, he tried to enlist the help of, I think it was the press corps meeting. That's where that speech comes from, where he's talking about secret societies, you know, with their own, you know, suburbs. Uh, yeah, that was the speech of the press corps. Right. Uh, I believe at the Waldorf Astoria, 10 days after the Bay of Pigs right. uh, was scuttled. And I think he was stinging from that. Yes, and you're right. I mean, he, he makes he, he makes a veiled um, threat, I guess, or at least exposure of, I would say, the Vatican. And uh, and that, I think, signs his death warrant. And plus, he also popped off when he was running uh, against his other uh, Democratic uh, uh, opponents uh, trying to get the nomination. Uh, you know, in 59, he was saying that the Vatican won't rule me. Uh, that probably doesn't go over too well in Rome, so I don't know. Well, yeah. well you know, I, I have a – there's going to be a lot of pictures in these films from guys bowing down in front of the Pope, bowing down in front of uh, the Cardinal in New York. I have pictures of that that you don't really – the public really doesn't see how much of uh, these guys co co to, you know, to, you know, basically uh, are obedient before the, you know, Catholic church hierarchy. So, you know, those aren't ones that they, those aren't pictures they publish in the papers, but uh, I think people will find that interesting. All right. And thank you for that. But uh, let me, let me bring you back to where you were going along the lines, uh, at least uh, you were speaking uh, with regards to Obama. So let's talk about Brzezinski. I mean, yeah. Brzezinski was, was Obama's handler and Kissinger was McCain's guy. So you have these two kind of New World Order operatives who have direct ties to, you know, uh, Eastern elites, Rockefeller family, who are going to be advisors on a for national policy at least, and if not more, uh, you know, two potential uh, winners for, you know, the presidency, whether it was going to be McCain or Obama. I suspect that they, you know, Obama was going to win. You know, McCain was just a phony, you know, horse uh, they were running against him. But um, I have some very interesting things on Brzezinski. I mean, I, like I was saying, his two book titles were a cult, the two, the Between Two Ages, which is like Aeons and Crowley's idea, the Aeon of Osiris and the Aeon of uh, Horus, which we are probably now in. And then uh, the Grand Chessboard, which is occultic. It, uh, most people would just think, oh, it's a kind of a game, and that's one interpretation. But the chessboard, 88, it's 8 by 8 uh, squares, and uh, those are important Pythagorean numbers. I mean, uh, Pythagoras was a Greek philosopher, a mathematician, but he also had a kind of secret society sensibility. He scoured the earth to find all the great knowledge, but he didn't want to give it out to the people. He wanted to keep it all for himself. And, uh, you know, you see, if you look in our recent history, a lot of interesting things happen uh, with that 88 because uh, of its cult uh, meaning. Uh, so uh, there's a direct tie there, and I suspect that Brzezinski is probably an initiate of uh, one or if not many secret societies. He's uh, He's been up to a lot of not, not much good for the last 30 years. Anyway. I, I don't even know. I mean, you wouldn't find him actually kind of logged into any secret societies. I mean, you can argue about you know, the, uh, uh, the Council on Foreign Relations. And certainly that was... The trilateral, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, the Council of Foreign Relations was also authored, uh, if you will use that word, by uh, Rockefeller. And I find right. it interesting, I think it's around 1921 at that same time, and I've always thought this interesting. That's when Edward Bernays hit this country with two books, uh, Crystallizing Public Opinion and Propaganda. It seemed like it was a joint attack 
on getting this thing through. But he made some smarmy comments, Bernays did, in his book. Uh, he called it, what is it, what did he call it? Um, oh, you know, I'll find it later, but he didn't call it Council on Foreign Relations. He said, ah, oh, man, something pretty close to it. And I just thought it was a real, you know, Weisenheimer wink and elbow in the ribs of all of us. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll, and I'll, I tell you what, I'll get that and I'll find it and I'll bring it out. Sorry that I was uh, trying to recall that, but I said, no, it's okay. Because, I mean, it was like counsel. I think it meant counsel, like counselor on public relations. And I'm like, man, that's pretty close. But Bernays obviously wrote two books that I'm telling you, folks, if you want to know the game plan on manipulation, even in an era before TV, read Crystallizing Public Opinion and Propaganda. And Bernays, the nephew of Sigmund Freud, tapped his uncle for all these, uh, I guess, mythologies, if you will, methodologies, rather. And apparently... Sigmund wasn't too happy about it when he found nephew uh, Bernays was using it for something that Freud didn't necessarily intend it to be used for. But man, it was effective, and that's another whole. Well, there's another. There's another important person who read Freud, and his name was Adolf Hitler. He read uh, one of Freud's, Freud's books about uh, the psychology of crowds, and and uh, that's a known reference from Hitler. So he learned a lot, like Bernays, about how to manipulate. Uh, large bodies of people, and he did that masterfully. You can just look that, you know, through German history. But uh, on the subject of these kind of societies that everybody's kind of interested in the conspiratorial realm, I guess, uh, I have a an interesting clip that took place between Brzezinski and uh, Brian uh, Lamb of C-SPAN. <clears throat> and uh, Lamb asked him a pretty good question. He asked him, you know, everybody's curious about you because of connection to secret societies, and uh, you know they see you as a conspir- you know, conspirator. And Brzezinski is pretty sharp, and he res- he resp- responded uh, like this. And this is a clip I think everybody should see. It's included in uh, a call of Obama. He says, "I don't believe in this notion of secret societies controlling people, but of course, in any political system, there are over the table and under the table arrangements. As far as the organizations you have met- mentioned, Bilderberger, CFR, and Trilateral." They are all on top of the table organization. So to Brzezinski, those are all, you know, people outside of the, that uh, kind of more elite realm, think of them as the secret, you know, secret handshake shake place. But to Brzezinski, those are all easily analyzed and uh, easily vetted organizations, which means that he knows where the real secret thing take, take place. Anyway, he goes on to say, we know what they are. We know what they do. We probably exaggerate their influence in many cases, but more importantly, they operate overtly. And then he uh, kind of continues to go on, and then later on in the thing, you know, it's, uh, he talks about, you know, different different de facto, you know, organizations that they meet. And, you know, if you want to find something, and it's interesting, it's a thing for further research, research. I think even on, on David Rockefeller's uh, Wikipedia site, you can see how many organizations David Rockefeller is associated with. Amazing. And they, they yeah, there are there are organizations the public's never heard about. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you can look it up right now. You can just go to David Rockefeller's site. There's like 50 organizations. The province, you know, the provenance of which Americans would just be like, "What's that? Who does that? What's that?" And that, you know, David Rockefeller's supremely well connected. So anyway, uh, my thing about Brzezinski is that. You know, it's it's important to see who these guys are. He's clearly, to me, an occultist of one side or another. I mean, his his book titles kind of give that away. But uh, you know, going back to Obama, 
uh, you know, I just wanted to kind of emphasize other things. There, when he was running for president, he would say all kinds of things that were clearly meant for the ruling class and then, you know, certain things that are meant for the public. But he said uh, one of these, he had a, a meeting that took place in Los Angeles, and he, he emphasized that he's a cousin of Dick Cheney, you know, and also a friend of a, a character by the name of J- James Whitmore, who is a, an actor in Hollywood. Well, James Whitmore was a Skull and Bones Society member, so by saying that he's a friend of, of James Whitmore, to me, I interpreted that as him being on board with kind of the Skull and Bones Society. And, uh, you know, I think everybody should kind of realize that, that Obama is saying these things as an, with an inside, you know, wink and a nod. So right. I have that in there. And, uh, you know, just I have other things about Obama, about how, you know, he bows down before before dignitaries. He he can't do anything off a teleprompter, so you can see all his teleprompter mishaps. Uh, he won't put his heart over the national flag, no American pin, and, uh, you know, he's clearly some kind of New World Order stooge. He just doesn't care about uh, the nationalism of the United States, clearly. And, uh, but do you, you know, I... But, but do you think in this day and age, honestly, since we've entered whatever you want to call this period, so we have presidents that, that talk something and walk something differently and are really now in a period. And I'll, I'll say it goes back to Daddy Bush, and you can even argue Carter, whatever. Uh, and yet they talk nationalism and uh, patriotism, and yet they're selling us down the river into a, a one-world order. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, no doubt. And these, the thing is about these guys is they, they're beyond money and they're beyond national boundaries because they don't have limitations of – you know, what the, the middle class or what's called the middle class or lower class have. They don't have to worry about taxes in a lot of ways. They have shelters. They, uh, you know, aren't, aren't poor, so they're not stuck with dealing with a lot of the uh, administrative bodies or the onerous, you know, uh, state and federal authorities. They have ways of getting out of trouble. I mean, these guys don't don't have to worry about that, so their sensibilities aren't even – nationalistic in my opinion and i think they just i think you're right they just they just parrot you know that that party nationalism line for the public's benefit so that they'll keep working and paying taxes uh, the late joe Mion, and sorry that we we've lost her but uh, she would go on and say you know you, you take a look at the terminology and with clinton all of a sudden the word interdependence became a buzzword and that means for all intents and purposes uh a blurring of national boundaries and an amalgamation of all things. Uh, this interdependence means we're all going to be one big happy family, which of course has always been one of the great lies uh, from Satan. And although it looks like it's going to be good, it has to be. It's the old story too, William, you know, nobody bite into a poison apple that didn't look shiny on the outside. Right. And that's what's being sold now. And I look at all these kids going through the public pool system and all this bit about uh, the green movement and uh, multiculturalism all sounds great. And on face, if it were for a non-nefarious purpose, I'd say beautiful, but it's not. And that's another thing that's happening from the inside out. I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, no, I was just on the subject of education. There's a, there I have a clip in there where uh, Mitt Romney was bagging on Obama fairly because Obama wants to put sex ed- This is unbelievable. It's actually true. <laughs> Obama wants to have sex education in kindergarten. So he's here. Obama is kind of mocking Mitt Romney for being a white middle-aged stooge by, you know, kind of having a, a funny voice. And then he goes, so Mitt, Mitt Romney is making fun of me for asking for sex education in the schools and blah, blah, blah. And then he follows up and finishes and Obama says, but it's the right thing to do. 
I mean, it's that's sick. It is. He's a sick puppy. They all are. <laughs> I know. I mean, how did this guy even stay elected? You know, and it, it just gets worse and worse. I mean, <clears throat> I think that when you look at all the stuff I've compiled and put it together, I think you can actually have a clearer picture of these guys' personalities. They're as perverse as, you know, as you can get. Uh, I tell you what, why don't we at this point also give people kind of like some kind of uh, shape to what you're doing. Uh, what do you have in mind as far as uh, the number of documentaries you're going to release? And without putting any pressure on you, when do you think that those might be available? I'm, I'm trying. I just have a very busy schedule. I've had one. I have some free time coming up, so they'll probably come out in a month. And maybe, uh, you know, I can send you send you something once I'm done. But, you know, it's it's. I have everything compiled. I just... It's just really putting the time together to edit and, uh, you know, really get everything together. So I think, uh, you know, soon, soon, sooner than later. But I definitely have, I mean, I have <clears throat> scheduled a lots of uh, documentaries. My next one, after I finish these three and get them out, my next one is going to be uh, about elite perversion, past and present. You know, so I'm going to go from all the way, earliest history, all the way up today and show that, you know, a lot of, uh, Elitists engage in things that the average the public would just not be believed to be possible. That's why, you know, uh, you have you have uh, a ruling class in America the way it is now. So, you know, I mean, it's like a, it's a repeat of, of the other decadent societies. Uh, this is kind of um, on the side, but but when you said that, you talked about powerful people and how debacked they really are. Um, I can't remember. What luminary in the United States, I guess a former European something or other, I think was being tried, what, the death of his wife, and, was, and he was defended by Dershowitz? Right, Von Bulow. There you go. And, of course, now this is in the Hollywood thing, but to me, I'm left with this as a certain kind of uh, brand, if you will. Uh, after, after the trial's over and Von Bulow's happy, Dershowitz got him off. If you remember this at all, I don't know, Dershowitz looks into the back of the seat. And he realizes that he just defended a fiend and won. Right. And he said, right. I'm like, you are a very strange man. And Bob Buell looked at him and he goes, you have no idea. Right. Well, I tell you yeah. what, you know, I mean, I can't argue with that. People have no idea. You know, we all get upset about these characters. We like to whoop them upside the head. But it goes back to this idea of, like, look, you know, you're dealing with messengers from below. And we deal right. not with flesh and blood, but principalities of darkness. So forget all that kind of stuff. Uh, that is not the way to... Uh, uh, combat them, and unfortunately, it has gotten so ripe. And you know, William, I always threaten to do an article. I probably should do that for the upcoming e-zine about it. This is such a godly country. Then please explain to me the symbology. You know, yeah. from DC. Explain, explain to me the Franklin scandal, the cover-up, and the total manipulation of uh, the state and federal authorities for that. I mean, that's. I mean, that's one of the things I would handle. But that's a. That's not just a. A local problem. I mean, if you go to all these other countries, the same kind of thing happened in Belgium, Portugal, France, uh, England. I mean, it's all, it's in every country that you know. I've uh, it's, it's such, such it's amazing and the cover up. Mexico, uh, Chile. I mean, this is uh, and then you have the Catholic Church, which is basically a. I mean, what they've done is it's not. I mean, it's amazing how they've gotten away with criminality for for decades. Uh, you know, I, I had on Ellen Lachter, uh, and she's, she's a, just a great person, a clinical psychologist that deals with ritual abuse victims down in San Diego. She's a Jersey girl. 
and mm-hmm. come on quite a bit. And I really want to get her back on again. I mean, it was always a good thing. And I was always amazed at her resiliency, both her and her husband. Can you imagine doing this stuff all the time? No. I mean, yeah, I don't understand either. And she came on with the No Blitz at one time and some other folks. Uh, this, is, this is the sordid underbelly of this country, which nobody really wants to know about, and that's understandable. But the fact that it's there, and even goes back to things, uh, and I don't know if we're going too far afield here, but, I mean, when JonBenet Ramsey, I mean, whatever that was about, I mean, are you kidding me? Yeah. Are you kidding me? How does somebody get into a household? I mean, I won't go on with it any further because I think everybody understands the scenario. I'm like, I'm not understanding this unless this was a sacrifice of a virgin around the winter solstice and the feast of Saturnalia, or as we people know it as, Xmas. Right. Well, I think that, uh, you know, I've heard a lot of stuff about I've read a lot about that, and I got, Cyril Wecht, who's a pretty well-known foreign man. Uh, right. right. Yeah, and he's done a lot of good stuff about Kennedy. But uh, he said that if that hadn't happened, at the state of her body, she, uh, her parents would have both gone to jail. You know, that she had already, she was already, according to him, that she was already felt what's going on. And I, I vaguely remember discussing with you, but, you know, after the, the real party, the after the, the first party starts at about 10 or 11 o'clock, apparently the, the other party starts, you know, where, you know, a lot of people come in late at night and then the really evil stuff takes place. So, you know, they probably had a Christmas party and then everything else happened and God only knows what happened. I don't know. But you know, the, the family knew something, I, I, I believe. Uh, that, that, that is absolutely horrible from top down. And it's yeah. kind of unusual for these characters uh, who have made a pact. And we can't explain that. We could not prove that. So it's all, yeah, I know it's all uh, hearsay. But, you know, this stuff seems to occur at certain times, and it always involves, you know, children. And, and you understand this fully, and, and so does everyone else. And, I mean, you don't have to be a Christian to get it. But there's one thing I don't think that the Lord can, can book more than anything else, and that is do not, do not mess with the children. I mean, I think that's pretty clear in Scripture. What do you think, William? Oh, I agree. I mean, to, to do this to one of me, it would be better to have a lodestone tied around your neck and thrown into water. So I think it's... I think that's the quote offhand, but uh, yeah, it's it's these are the evil times, man, and uh, it needs to be rejected. And it's it's really in the thing is is that there's nobody really shouting from the rooftops. I mean, the silence from the Christian field is uh, it's amazing. I mean, I, these people are getting paid pastors, and I just don't see a lot of them out there really fighting. Uh, you know this. Uh, I would call it an occultist conspiracy, which is another title for a movie that I would like to do that shows that this is not just some kind of political field or cultural field or entertainment field, but it all meshes together. And a lot of these, you know, same themes are happening uh, not only on a, you know, uh, really on a global scale. So Um, I want to mention something to you, and then I want to uh, share with us your website, what you have. It's coming, okay? And yeah. I wanted to mention this uh, a certain bit um, with, with Jacob. But, you know, the Utikins and I would talk about uh, when they would go out. The Utikins were the last ones that I know that went out and were proactive in trying to, well, not in trying to, they gave presentations, try to take what took place, you know, with the W2Cs and such uh, on 9-11 and break it down. And I would say fairly successful because they were good at what they did. Uh, Andy and uh, Herb both covered certain separate uh, 
uh, uh, elements inside that day, and they did okay. And the one thing we talked about, and Jacob had mentioned this before in the first hour, and that is when you talk to people and you kind of get them to understand that something wasn't really right that day, but what happens is you can see it in their eyes when when they're with you and then they jump to the horrible question, and that is, then you mean that our government kills us. And right. call that the second level. And when you, you could see them get to the second level, and then you know, you, you know that they were in deep trouble, and you know, this is going to be a battle to fight this cognitive dissonance. Right. Uh, and, and, and don't you think that that's what we're, we're facing? I mean, this, this whole thing about 9-11, the shameful thing about us is that we have short memory spans. TV will sweep this away, as quickly as it brought it to us. By the end of the month, 9-11 isn't going to be on anybody's agenda. They're going to forget it. Right. And then, I, in a sense, you know, I hate to say this, we can go back to work. But right. that's the point, don't you find? You know, I, I, you know, I'm having this deja vu, like I even asked you this once before, and maybe I did. But the point is, is that you can break it down that things are not right, as it was with the Lusitania, as it was with the Pearl, uh, with Pearl Harbor, and with the right. U.S. Maine. And the thing is, then people jump you, and they go, huh? And then you got a problem. Yeah, I mean it's uh, it's sad. I mean I think that that's that's how these guys, uh, the politicians, have gotten away with it so much over time. That's how they got away with it, get away with it in all kinds of tyrannical societies. You know, is that people are busy, easily distracted. They have family problems. They got to pay bills, and uh, you know the the politicians become their masters because of that. And, so, you know, and truthfully, a Renaissance landscaper, a, you know, a friend in, uh, of mine, and we had many discussions. Uh, he was probably ahead of the curve as far as this goes. I always think about contacting him and saying, I remember what we talked about starting the Knights Templar, but I'm like, do you, under- do you understand where it's going? I have no idea if, he, if, if he's on the same page. I probably won't do it. Uh, but, but there's the point, though. I mean, uh, is it time not, I think, for people to realize that government is dysfunctional for a reason. They're not your friend, and they were fake being an advocate. But in essence, they basically step back and let the dogs loose on all of us. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that second level you're talking about, about how they kill us, I think that you, uh, the people who think that it doesn't happen should see how many times the government sent people off to die, whether they kill on 9-11, or they send them off to bogus wars and die, or have their lives ruined or are shattered, per, you know, PSD and PTSD or drink themselves to death or commit suicide. You know, they should see how many poisons the government has has allowed into the marketplace and killed people, how many poisonous uh, pills they put into to the marketplace, how the shoddy, uh, you know, air that they've allowed people to breathe over time, the lousy working conditions. And if you look that back through history, it shouldn't come as a surprise that the government could kill 3,000 people and, uh, you know, use that as an excuse for more war, you know, or more, and, and for more social, social breakdown and, uh, you know, social control, really. I mean, that was a, tr- 9-11 was a tyrannical act, and it was uh, fomented a kind of dictatorial, you know, environment here in the United States, no doubt. And uh, so if you see it all together, and both elections were probably stolen, and, oh, yeah. you know, when you put it all together, they shouldn't be, People should not be surprised. They don't want to believe it. It's just like, you know, you don't want to believe John Wayne Gacy is next door, 
you know, killing little boys either. But, you know, these things happen, unfortunately. And it's just not seeing the world. And people have a naive, you know, rosy-tinted glasses view of the world. I used to have it. And, unfortunately, that's just not the way it is. I mean, things definitely have and flow. Things get better and worse. But right now, we're at a low point, and we're still going down, you know. And uh, people have got to wake, wake up and see it as a spiritual issue, not as a political issue or a cultural issue. I mean, these are evil times. And I, I, I mean, it's sad that people don't get it. They just adapt to it. And I, I think that that's really a historical uh, constant is that people people will adapt to evil and fight it. I think that that's, you know, what you see in places like Nazi Germany, Soviet Union. I mean, it's just like what Solzhenitsyn said, that they should have fought the Secret Service right away. Instead, they just adapted and uh, I can't remember his famous quote, but, quote, but you know, when they were coming for people, if, if the Russians would have fought right away, they wouldn't have gotten away with all their abuses, you know. I, I will say one thing uh, I, on a good note, and, and I think um, Rita, who was um, a woman that was, I'm getting a little here. Rita, who was the daughter of a German who jumped ship in the United States, got married, had a baby here, Rita, went back. But what happened was the INS caught him, whatever the INS was at that yeah, time. Yeah, I think he told me that story. Yeah. And, she, and, yeah. and she's raised it. But the thing that she told me, which, I mean, I'll, I'll still say, look, you know, we are better than the rest. She said when, when they knew that Germany was done and they were sitting in some hamlet, you know, away from the cities, right. that they just prayed that the United States got to them before the Russians did. Right, yeah. And I'm so, I mean, good for us in that sense. Let's face that, okay? Yeah. All right. Um, but uh, let me go on uh, to um, what I said before and have you – uh, tell the folks about what you're doing, about occult911.com, uh, and, and what's, what's shaking so they can go there and see what you're up to. Well, I'm going to have to redo my, my website here in the next month, so they can go to www.occult911.com. I do have a couple other uh, documentaries that are on there, the Cold Hollywood Part 1, Part 2 is coming out, and I also have one on Aleister Crowley, and then uh, my book is available Pretty much on the web, you can get it uh, hard copy, electronic copy, whatever you want. And then uh, once I get my my next website up, I'm gonna have like a Facebook, you know, button and a Twitter button and things that are really kind of my <laughs> next my next step. I really am kind of a luddite. I don't really <laughs> right. do the technology things very well. I'm I'm about two steps behind the rest of the public. Uh, but uh, then I'll then I'll hopefully you know be able to. Uh, you know, have everything taken care of, and I'll announce a release and send out a press release probably in the next month or two when I get everything done. There's something I, I appreciate about and I find uh, attractive about you, and that is I can hear in you the zeal that was once in me before life stopped me. <laughs> so I always like that line from uh, Homer Simpson, oh, dreams, that's what happened before life stopped me. All right. But, uh, but I, I hear in you um, the enthusiasm. I mean, you're on a lot of information. It's a discovery thing. It's nothing like it. Uh, Tira, who had done some work on uh, Garfield and Gateau and, and all that. I mean, I asked her if she had done a show with us, and I said, you know, but did you enjoy it? And she said, yes. And I think you, you're, you're seeing the same thing. It'll take a lot out of you. It's almost like it's a bottomless pit. But the, but the, the joy of the hunt and the nail things down, I think, is probably what drives all researchers to do what they do in, in spite of the fact that, that sometimes the topics – as you found out, are not all that pleasant. Right. And, you know, the things that I, I mean, there's other things that 
I will discuss in this upcoming movie. One is uh, the connection between George Bush Jr., uh, Michael Aquino, Paul Valelli, Colonel Paul Valelli, who's on Fox News all the time. Uh, Valelli and Aquino both wrote a, uh, a paper, and I'm sure this is just one that's been published. I'm sure they have other ones that were never published, but it was called From Psyop to Mind War. And their idea was just to constantly barrage people with myths, uh, not just to have a one instance of a, of a PSYOP, but just create a mind war environment of pure terror, terror all the time, confusion, uh, and using, you know, high technology. And, uh, you know, I think that we saw that institute. And the scary thing is that Fox News is putting this Valeli guy, who's a buddy of Michael Aquino's, who's like the head of the Temple of Satan. Yeah. Yeah, he's on there 30 or 40 times. I got pictures of him. So, I mean, it's scary that these people are being, you know, allowing themselves to be bombarded, not just with biops, but with a guy who is implicated in the most uh, vicious crimes. And then there's Hunter S. Thompson, who's familiar with Aquino. Hunter S. Thompson was in San Francisco uh, during the 70s. I can't remember the exact dates offhand. I have to go back and look at my notes. But uh, there's some things that have been expurgated from the Internet that uh, – people will be very interested to know. I will tell you that privately I love Hunter S. Thompson's work. I think uh, even though I know now that politics is a sham, his work on free unloading on the campaign trail in 1972 is excellent. Uh, when he wanted to be incisive, he was sharp. When he wanted to bust people's balls and go after them, he was the best. Uh, oh, I mean, he knew it, but, you know, he knew the underground, too. I mean, this is a guy who went to the Bohemian Grove. He used to hang out at... Uh, all kinds of scary clubs in San Francisco. I mean, he, you know, and some of the deeper, darker stuff is I know. horrific. I mean, they're not, not good. I'm not comfortable at all with his death, by the way. And it was frightening in Franklin cover-up that supposedly uh, that was Paul, uh, what was his name? Paul Bonacci. Yeah, Bonacci, who said uh, from his testimony that Hunter S. Thompson was filming a snuff movie. Is that correct? Is that right. right? Yeah, and there's other there's other corroborating stories about that, too. Uh, you know, I hate that, but if it's true, yeah. so again, I mean, I don't want to go there, don't want to believe it, but when, when Thompson was good, man, he was the best. Well, you know, you, and there's other stories he talks about Satanism, and, you know, he was poor. In a lot of parts of his career, he was writing uh, articles for Sports Illustrated. Yes. He'd have to put out. And one of them mentions Satanism straight out. I mean, people hunting out. I mean, it's scary. I mean, he clearly, uh, you know, I mean, his house was called Owl Farm. That was his place. So, you know, he has the owl that flies at night, just like the Bohemian Club. Right. It just goes on and on. You can make the cold connections. When he died, his girlfriend at the time said something really strange. And uh, instead of, like, it wasn't a Christian thing, what she said to the public was, he ruled Terra. T-E-R-R-A. He ruled Terra. And uh, it's always haunted me about that. Like, he was, and, you know, he, when you really look into his character, he was a scary dude. Guns all the time, drunk all the time, got up at, like, 2 o'clock in the afternoon, stayed up till 6. God, I love it. (laughs) He was crazy. I mean, the the writing on the Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, the intro driving into Vegas is uh, is a classic. I mean, the guy... But, you know, he touched a lot of those sides. I mean, the Hells Angels, the San Francisco at the time of, uh, you know, it's great changes in the late 60s and 70s. I mean, he was there. He was there. He was a political junkie. He knew how power worked. He knew how scummy these people were. He knew how scummy Nixon was. He knew how scummy the system was. He was relatively honest about it. 
I mean, he was a big Nick Nixon loved to talk to him about football. Remember? Yeah. Him in the yeah. Um, yeah, about Las Vegas, my greatest line is, there's nothing more wholly unmanageable than a man in the depths of an ether binge. Okay. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I want to tell you right now, folks, we're going to open up the phone lines. Uh, Jim graciously has allowed us to go over it. Like, he didn't know what you would ask, but it's still in all. It's his call, and it's his right to do whatever he wishes. He is very, very generous with his time. And if I give you his email, you can uh, send him, like, you know, nice letters and, and fine gifts and money. Uh, but the line to call in is 618. I think Lady Viz laughed out in the uh, living room there. I don't know. 618-912-4681. Once again, 618-912-4681. Call in if you wish. Uh, we have a lot of ground to cover, and then, William, you're okay. We can stay on a little bit longer. Yeah, i got another probably 15 minutes to a half an hour once the family comes home. And it's over. It's over. <laughs> over. Yeah. All right, one to the guideline. Um, yeah, I think right. uh, uh, Gordon Comstock wants to call and ask you uh, about something with regard to J.D. Salinger. Uh, okay. Uh, and also, I got an email from uh, Jeff the Longrider uh, from Redacted News in D.C., and he says... Um, he might be able to help you with uh, your projects. Remember, you had asked me something along those lines. Oh, yeah. No, and then I'm also doing a book on uh, Alistair Crowley. It's called Alistair Crowley, A Visual Study. So I have pieces from my original uh, research. But when I did my book originally, you know, I had probably 20 pictures or 30 pictures that I put into the book, but I actually have about 300. So I was going to make a more visual scrapbook, but I really don't have – graphic skills to kind of compile everything in a kind of, uh, you know, uh, something more palatable to watch where you could do um, stenciling and all that stuff. So, you know, layouts and those kind of things. I mean, right, the original research is done. I'm, I'm going to hook you guys up because Jeff is a good man. And, okay. I'll CC you. I'll CC you on the book. Okay. You can take a look at the rough draft. All right. Not pretty. Also, we have a caller, so God's mercy on you, swine. <laughs> okay. Come on, bro. It's Gordon. Oh, I'm disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Gordon, go ahead. Uh, I, I kind of prefaced what you were going to ask uh, and have at it. Yeah, and this is one of those things that it's so hard to track down. You really can't. I don't know how you would pursue it doggedly, but you can take a pot shot at it now and then. And one of the few people I would bother even asking would be William. Uh, but you guys jogged my memory of it when you were talking about Kissinger, and Kissinger had such a nebulous, a strange um, military intelligence role in World War II. And it reminded me of another guy who had a, a kind of a nebulous World War II military intelligence career, and that was uh, uh, J.D. Salinger, who later went on to uh, write Catcher in the Rye that he's best known for, and then dropped out of sight completely. And that's so, that's always been so weird to me. And of course, the novel Catcher in the Rye has been. Uh, linked in conspiracy circles to uh, having MK Ultra triggers in it. You got it, you see that in the Mel Gibson conspiracy theory movie. Of course, you got the Mark David Chapman thing going on there too. Um, William, do you, it's a long shot, I know, but do you know any, anything about Salinger? Not not too much. I do know that uh, Chapman. Uh, there is an occult connection between Chapman, one of Crowley's followers. Uh, was Kenneth Anger. He actually was met with Chapman a week before he shot Lennon. And uh, uh, he had, uh, Anger, I've been doing some reading about Anger, and he knew that Chapman was mind-controlled. He actually said that Manson was mind-controlled, which is interesting. But uh, as far as J.D. Salinger, maybe he saw something he didn't like and, you know, did a uh, 
Kaczynski type thing where he just dropped out and decided to go. Yeah, it's just not normal. So there, to me, that's proof that there was something going on with Salinger. Something happened. I, 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 let, let me just share something with you. And I was writing for uh, the Rutland Herald at the time when I found out about Salinger living in New Hampshire and being very reclusive to the point where he supposedly has a, had a tunnel that he could walk from his house and you know emerge to get his mail from the PO box uh, from the post uh, wow. from the box on the on the, on the you know on the uh, street. We call them mailboxes. Okay, great. And then he would just go back again. And I never really understood that. But you know what, what Gordon said, and, and you know William, what you're talking about. In those days, in the late '70s, I never thought much about it. But now I'm thinking about him like if you're if you're living like that. And although he was healthy, I'm sure. Uh, I I think I understand why you would do that. I mean, I can completely understand that. Yeah, I mean, he might have seen things that just freaked him out, and he's done. I mean, I wouldn't want to be in the the ruins of Nazi Germany and see what happened there, and see what the and when the 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 Russians came in and did all kinds of nasty things. Americans shot a lot of people too. I mean, it was it's it was it's not pretty. And then you know, he, there's all kinds of things that could have freaked him out. Operation Paperclip and and Gordon, yeah, he's still there. Yeah, and that seemed. I mean, let's take a look at this. Um, Orwell sequestered himself, if not exiled himself, uh, to Jura, uh, and yet, in a, in a way that's more socially acceptable, did not Salinger, in a, in a way, just sequester himself in, in isolation in a house in New Hampshire? You know, yeah, I really never put those two together, but yeah, they both turned into hermits, really. Well, I mean, I'm not saying that they're on par with Kaczynski, who was the guy, Unabomber guy, but... No. Kaczynski had had come through an MK Ultra program, and he was he clearly had, you know, he was hyper intelligent, but he he probably experienced it enough that, you know, going to where was he Idaho or Montana and living alone made sense, you know. Yeah, so I don't know. Yeah, I don't know how that. He's obviously crazy, but. Uh, I right, go. Do you get a follow up or what? I I actually do, <clears throat> and uh, I guess this would just be to. Uh, I. I <laughs> Because it's so frustrating. Uh, William, because this is what what I get so often, what's your reaction when, when it, it, because you're the kind of guy, obviously, that brings this up from time to time with, with you know, adults, uh, when you, you show them, say, you point out how George Bush Jr., and others like him, but let's just stick with him, uh, G.W. Bush Jr., how he would do the, the, the the satanic Cornut, El Cornuto signs right, yeah. in, in public, you know, go out of his way to do them. And 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 right. the typical reaction is, oh, well, he's doing the University of Texas hook'em horn sign. What's your reaction when you, you get that from people? <laughs> well, some of those are hook'em horns, but the time when he was with the Queen and other things, they're clearly, he's obviously making the satanic hand signal. So, uh, you know, I think that people just want to not believe. They don't believe in evil. They don't believe people are evil. Uh, and uh, they don't believe in active evil in the world. And, uh, you know, it's unfortunate. But, uh, you know, it's it's frustrating. I, you know, I think that... Yeah, the guy never went to Texas University. He's got no affiliation with it. But right. did, you, did you see... Now, hold on a second. Do you, do you remember that uh, when... Uh, uh, again, when Shrub and his wife went to England, and the story on this in 
being, you know, newspapers. Do you remember the oh? Yeah. Where his wife is down there, and on his side he has his hand down, and he puts him in the horn. All right. Did I see that at all? Yeah. Yeah, but it's it looks like it's a five-year-old right kid. Context. Yeah, it's right in context with all of his other behavior. So the thing is, is like, oh, I mean, maybe once or twice, but if you see all the, the secret society signs, he says, I mean, I've got clips, you'd be shocked, where he mentions 93. The, when he was leaving office in 2007, there's a, I have a copy of a speech that he gave in front of the press club, and uh, he mentions 93. He subtly threatens the press club with being – what he did was something really subtle, very, very subtle. But he he had a copy, he had a totem of somebody who had died in 9/11 and on on flight 93 in his pocket. He says, "I keep this in my pocket. I keep this totem in my pocket as a remembrance." Well, the creepy element of that is that one, he mentions 93, which are Crowley's numbers, Philema and Agape, and uh, the Kabbalistic numbers. But most serial killers like to keep the remembrance of the people they've killed. And uh, it can be interpreted easily by anybody out there as like, you better watch it. You know, you better not say say anything. So there's a lot more stuff about I mean, he, you know, that, that Bush's kid said, my dad is a beautiful person. And a beautiful person is a very common term. And you can see this in, in films. And I, I'll, I'll put it in Hollywood, too. And it's referenced by Tarantino. But... It's also referenced by Marilyn Manson. They have a song called The Beautiful People. Exactly. Yeah, but his, his his own daughter said, my dad is a beautiful person. And there's the double speak, you know. Uh, you've hey, got the, oh, he's a great person, but also there's the occultism right there. Hey, William, uh, and I'm sure you're obviously familiar with that song, The, the Beautiful People by Marilyn Manson. I was, I, I was listening to it one day, not voluntarily, but I was listening to it. And if you count the uh, the beats to it, 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 the repetitious beat, the beautiful people, the beautiful people, count the syllables, and it's six, six, six. Wow. Over and over. That's, that's, I'm sure it's intentional. Yeah. That whole album, Antichrist Superstar, is just, if you want to see the satanic mindset, you know, there's a perfect example. I mean, it's, uh, it's astonishing. I mean, God. I mean, so... Uh, as far as, you know, the, the Carnuto sign, I mean, it's just one of many. The, the, these, the Bush family is so well-versed in, in the occult, it's, it's astonishing. Once, well, you, once, you, once you put that lens on and decide to look at it that way, your jaw will drop, just like when you watch uh, Harry Potter. Once you put the lens and you want to see what the occult is, you will see that that, that lady, J.K., who changed her middle name to the letter K., the 11th letter of the alphabet. It's not representing a name or anything, but you will see that it's an encyclopedic, not very knowledgeable understanding of all occult doctrines from beginning to end. I mean, she made it. It was like a child's fable to understand the occult, plain and simple. <laughs> At the very end of the, uh, the, the last movie, uh, the kids grow up and go back to Hogwarts, right? And they go into this, uh, this like, portal or whatever at the train station and it's 93 it's nine and three quarters which is kind of like a 93 uh so they go into this thing but it's exactly 19 years later from the last you know showdown with Voldemort and uh 
19 is a very high number, which I've learned recently is represents uh, the uh, represents the, the the morning star in the in numerology. And so you see that 19 number is repeated all the time. There are 19 terrorists. It's not 20, not 18. And you can actually, there's other occult books out there that are like 19th Street. So 19 has a lot of meaning, which I've realized. And that's how I came to the conclusion about 11 and 77. I would just see them in different different environments and say this has to have some kind of meaning to it. So anyway, the occult conspiracy is there. All right, Gordon. Yeah, that's all I have. Yeah, get lost. <laughs> okay. Bye-bye, you guys. I'll see you. All right, Take care. Uh, all right, folks, uh, again, you're welcome to call in about anything you want to. And I'm gonna, what I'm going to do is, uh, William, unless you got, uh, if you're compelled, let me know. Otherwise, I want to throw this to 9-11 if you want to field some questions for obvious, uh, for obvious reasons. Yeah, I mean, if you want to talk about 9-11 and my view of it, I'm sure I'd be happy to. All right, folks, and, you know, like I said, we're opening up the phones if you're, if you're uh, so interested to talk to William or ask questions to both of us. And that number, again, is 618-912-4681. No, you always hate when I listen to talk shows. They, like, get the number so fast. I'm like, well, my room, you know, I can't do anything with that. It is 618-912-4681. And I'll go uh, check in with Jim, the most patient man in the entire universe, and see what we got going on here. Um I had mentioned also, and I think a lot of uh, folks heard, uh, you know, take it for what it's worth. I mean, all right, all right, let me frame this. First of all, yes, um, there is a fascination with uh, the occult, with numerology, but there also is a stand-up, obvious thread in the Bible about numerology. Look, let me ask you this, William, did you ever think about this, but the world is made of geometry and numbers. That's the right. whole idea, even down to an atom. Don't you agree? Yeah, I think everything's numerological, but here's the thing is that there's numerology for, I guess, God's side and numbers exactly. for their side. Nothing is good or bad except what people use it for. And having said that, I think we have a caller, and caller, if you're there, come on. Uh, yes, I am. Oh, no. Oh, no, 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 no. no. <laughs> but, but the, the planes, if the government did it, what happened to the bodies? Oh, my God. Um, yeah. Uh, this, is, this is the long man, the long runner <laughs> from the land of the district of, uh, what was that, uh, criminal Washington, okay. D.C. Uh, yeah. Yeah, William, you're going to probably be talking to this guy later on with regard to your project. But, yeah, Jeff, to okay. hear from you, really, uh, and you've been around a lot lately. There's a lot of stuff gone down. But uh, with what it pertains to, uh, let's just say with 9-11 and all the crap that's, well, obviously I've known it, that's happened. Uh, yeah, shoot us uh, some stuff that's going on. Uh, well, one thing that's currently bugging me um, is this, the, the, the series that's going on this week in the Toronto hearings. We've got this panel of um, people most haven't heard of a few of them. I have Kevin Ryan, which I have a few issues with right now, um, because he he really hates the Rock Creek Free Press. But um, uh, they're trying to get this panel together to come up with consensus uh, on what's good evidence and good research about 9/11 and going towards a uh, a possible investigation as opposed to the bad evidence. And I know that some of the people involved in that are um, definitely hitting uh, 
um, it, it, you know, I mean, the problem with research and looking at this stuff that the idea that that somebody is going to come up with what is approved and not approved. It's this whole group consensus mentality stuff that I can't stand. It's just, you know, if you're looking at it in, as a scientific model, um, you investigate it and, and you propose a theory. If the science works, if the theory holds up, it'll stick for a while until somebody comes up with some other um, information or investigative work that's going to disprove something that went on. So it just seems like they're trying to build up um, what what is, I guess, approved by the, the committee from like the Church of the Controlled Demolition and, and, and the other types out there that, that don't want to uh, go down the rabbit hole and see what's really going on. Um, yeah, uh, I'm going to ask you, uh, yeah. if you got a question for, for William, uh, only because we got somebody behind you, but yeah. I mean, by all means, if you have anything you want to post to either uh, uh, him or... me uh no just like what they were saying in the chat room i've, I've been drinking my dogfish head um beer so i won't belabor that that point and go into that and, and uh and he can he can contact me through the about the other stuff about the web uh, also uh, also jazz i mean really i mean you know i've emailed before you came on mm -hmm. uh you've been through a lot with uh whatever you want to call it for better or for worse and you've been in this, you know, right in the middle of all that stuff. And I'd like you to come on and chronicle it without a doubt, uh, whether you can uh, uh, give William a hand with his uh, future publications. Uh, I appreciate you, uh, you know, volunteering it. And I'll hook you two guys up. But, I mean, I would like you to come on, Jeff, also, because, like I said, you've seen a lot of stuff building up to this denouement, which is 9-11. And, and you know I would love to have you come on and uh, – break some of this stuff down because it's been a kind of a wild ride for the last four to six weeks, hasn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, especially with this this 10th anniversary um, ramp up to it, it's just, I mean, it is completely ridiculous. I mean, you know, they just recently, right before this um, event for tomorrow, they banned all of the 9-11 first responders, the police and firefighters from coming to the event. And I'm thinking it's just because they, uh, are afraid that these guys are going to show up in wheelchairs and iron lungs and, and going to ask some really pertinent questions about bombs in the buildings and things like that, and they don't want that. So, but, yeah, yeah, let's get together and do a show. All right, thanks for sharing that with us, and, yeah, we're going to do it. Thanks for calling in. All right. 
All right, we're going to go to another caller. Uh, Jim, if you have that person, please come on. Hey, Bruce, what's up, buddy? Oh, God. Yeah, oh, God, it's Gene from Brooklyn. Hey, look, oh, I, no. just wanna, I just want to thank uh, Jeff Long because he does have good taste in uh, Belgian ales. I have a, a nice Belgian that he uh, he endorsed, so uh, thanks, Jeff. Uh, but I'm wondering about this conference in Canada. Is this Canada... Uh, conference on uh, 911 investigation. Is this just going to reaffirm the 911 commission? I'm going to throw it over to William. Are you aware what on Serrano? No, really. I mean, I know that there's some kind of gathering there, but I don't. I don't have any idea what the, what the purpose is. Can I play? I mean, you know, it, you know, they're not letting, like uh, Jeff just said, they're not letting the firefighters and, 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 and a lot of the first responders come down because they don't want to see a bunch of disabled people from the event. Um, so it seems like, you know, this is going to happen. You know, the, the Canadians are just going to reinforce uh, the BS that they've been telling us. Are you trying you to know? go to Canada again? Gino? Yeah, I've got a bad connection here, I think. All right, yeah, we're having a little break up here. All right, did you hear the fact that I asked you whether or not you want to start another war with Canada? I can't make that out. Oh. All right, well, we'll, we'll try to spend uh, that up All right, look, you know what? You better get another call on because uh, I'm enjoying this Abby here, and uh, there's... Uh, we still love you, babe. Don't worry about it. Uh, okay. <laughs> I'll see you later. on me, bro. Yeah, all right. You got it, pal. I'll see you later. Yeah. Um, William, I think we can talk about this as well, and I'm getting feedback. I had a, I had a hard time hearing you on that one. Can you say that again, please? All right. Am I okay? Uh, now I hear you. All right. Now it sounds right. Okay. Um, what Gene was asking about was this Toronto conference. And, right. And it was Jeff Long who also told me that there, was, there were problems there. Ranky, Craig Ranky, who I think does the best work of anybody researching the three uh, locales, uh, right. you know, for 9-11. And, you know, it, it, I don't know. I, I just said, like, why are we doing these conferences? I mean, people make money. It's high profile. But in the end, what do you really get done? And it seems it's so much more fraught with problems. And, I mean, I looked at the roster of who was there. And I'm like, yeah, the same usual idiots. I mean I, I mean, I never read a thing from David Ray Griffin. He got nothing he can tell me about. I don't care about this crap. You know, I look at I, I always look at the at the stories, the reports from the newspapers when they can't gag the first uh, accounts of it. And right. so that was never a problem with me. But they had these conferences, like Gene was saying, and 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 Jeff had given me a heads up that all kinds of stuff is going down, and there's always infighting. You know, it's like screw the goddamn conferences. You can do webinars. What do you want to do? Do you want to make money, or do you want to go ahead and maybe make a profit? That's fine, but share the information at a lower cost for everybody. Who the hell is going to fly anymore? Go up to Toronto? Are you kidding? You're going to have a passport now. What kind of benefit are they going to derive out of that? That's what I want to know. I mean, it's probably some kind of uh, infantile necessity to be around other people who have similar ideas and, uh, you know, tell sound important to one another. I don't have any idea, but I, I've been in, I, I tend to, I do most of my work by myself for a reason because one, it, it right. says what I really want to say. And two, I don't get bogged down in other people, you know, you know, piecemealing, hair splitting, arguing, getting distracted, 
Uh, and, you know, what's, what good is a conference? Why don't they just put it online on YouTube and people can study it and see if it makes sense and write a book? I mean, I, I got down at Congress with Tom Owen and these other Christians and all this, stuff, you know, sharing, you know, absolutely indispensable information if you get the money to come out here, get wounds and, and uh, what the hell is the name of that place in Missouri? God damn. Branson. Yeah, Branson. All right. You know, it's an off season, so you can get, like, you know, rooms that's that, like three times too high for half the price. And I'm sorry. I mean, yeah. like, if it's indispensable knowledge, what are you looking for? Do you want to help the people or do you want to make money? Hello, it's about money. And conferences nowadays are fraught with all kinds of problems. So right. why are we doing this, man? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not casting any aspersions against Craig. I mean, if they're guests, I understand it. But the thing is, this is not the way to go anymore. Not any longer. Well, I think I, there's a, I mean, here's the thing for me is that you can draw conclusions right now that things are so bad that you just, I mean, I think the average person should get out from under the finger of the banks, the politicians, uh, you know, all the shy, the corporate shysters, and try to do something on themselves and sit around and talk about it, you know. I think that, that uh, it's clear to anybody who's paying attention that things have gone way, way wrong and the country is out of control. And, uh, you know, <laughs> you better start planning for the future in a way that uh, – you know, takes that into account. I mean, I, it's my understanding in some other bank, like in Greece right now, that things are so screwed up, everybody's gone back to the land and lived off their farm, you know, which is smart. And they don't have to rely on the bankers. That's how you starve the bankers. I mean, starving a banker is like an angel burns their wings, you know. So grow your own food. Don't borrow money. Get out of the financial system. Only operate on hard commodities. Be creative. Create your own stuff. And barter and trade it, right? I mean, that's really where we should be at as a country is just get away from these people and stop relying on these expensive commodities like gas and energy and, you know, maneuver around it. So uh, let me ask you, are you in this police state? I mean, God, I mean, it's terrible. Are you under the gun? Is it time for you to go? Yeah. All right. Uh, before you, I'll stick around, folks, for a little bit. If Jim's okay with it, and I'll, I'll take whatever calls. If not, then we'll just call it a day. But before you do that, William, thanks a lot for coming on. Also, just let people know uh, and make them aware that you're going to be producing these documentaries and going to come out pretty quick. Yeah, I mean, they've already been compiled. I just is really, I was I had some summertime stuff I was doing, so I'm ready to kind of pat down the hatches and really get them out there. So they'll each, there'll be three 90-minute ones, and then hopefully if I can get this, my book is halfway done, a visual study. I just got all kinds of other projects, but these ones are come out, and so hopefully they'll be of interest. They'll be available. All right, and also give them the um, the website. Cold911.com, and I'm going to have an update, and I'm kind of negotiating with the host provider right now to try to, you know, like I said earlier, just kind of upgrade it into, uh, you know, 2.0, so it'll be a little more interesting. Hopefully I'll be able to get some place where people can leave notes and, purchase some products and stuff like that. So it's a Colt 911. If anybody has any questions, they can send an email at uh, Colt 911 at gmail.com. All right, look, uh, thanks for coming on. And um, and we are definitely going to put up the long-lost audio that somebody, Carl Reiner, has uh, recorded. And, uh, yeah, you're one of the good guys, and you've done a lot of work. And uh, all we can do is the best we can to get that promoted. But, you know, uh, like you said, you know, you've got a job, you've got a life, you've got a family, and you do this on the side because not necessarily you want to, like, uh, make a, you know, a, a million, but that you want to get the information out because it is important. 
And well, you know, it'll always be there. It'll always, hopefully, I mean, it'll always be online. You can get it on Amazon uh, Video On Demand. That's where another uh, distribution channel that I'll be using, and it's worked out well already. People can see my films on there. And, uh, you know, you always have a different approach. And, you know, these cognitive, these truths and finding these hidden things are a way of uh, defense against this cognitive infiltration and the lot that just an incredible amount of lies and secrecy that are suffusing our entire, uh, unfortunately, our globe uh, since 9-11. And uh, you know, what it all comes down to is you're, we're in a spiritual war, frankly. It's not a political culture war. It's not right-left. It's about uh, cosmology and Almighty God and uh, his enemy, and he's marshalling his forces. And, uh, you know, it's not, it's not looking good for the good guys, and it never really has, but... Uh, at least we can stay aware and alert. And, you know, I think like on your website, it says stop following. Well, I can't remember exactly verbatim what you said, but don't fall, don't, don't believe the evil jerks, you know? Oh, that, I mean, that I, was yeah. Don't obey you. Well, she did it. She's saying the truth. I mean, don't go to war for these people. Don't go to Iraq. Don't go, don't sign up for the military. They're going to treat you like toilet paper. I mean, come on. Where are the political, I mean, it's a, if it's a spiritual issue and these people are into the occult and witchcraft and evil, then why are these pastors and these so-called Christians allowing these young kids who are, I mean, I'm 40, I'm older, but they're allowing these young kids to have their whole lives ruined, literally destroyed in a useless war that's transforming the world to a, a charnel house. It's disgusting, you know? I mean, the United States are the bad guys right now. We're not the good guys, okay? And that should be made perfectly clear. And I feel sorry for these false teachers and these uh, Pied Pipers and these uh, bad shepherds who are allowing these people to unquestionably throw their lives away for this crap, you know? It's disgusting. I'm sick of it, so it's got to stop. Uh, obviously, good point, and the story is courageous. And that right. is i got to run. Got to see you. Bye-bye. All right, take care. Connecting. Josh Peck. Yes, hello. Hey, Daniel Lott here, the Ed Children Broadcast. Hey, how you doing? Man, we're doing outside. exciting tonight. I'm so glad to have you back on the program, Josh. Oh, it's such a pleasure to be back on. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, I'm really excited, and it's, it's good to talk to you again. All right. Man, ex excellent PDF file getting ready for your rollout of your new book, A Cherub and Cherubis. Chariots. Man, what, what, man, you've got some outstanding... Uh, uh, titles in, in that, and you had so many contributors. Uh, who wrote the foreword to that book? I forgot to I forgot to look at that. Uh, Mark Flynn, uh, brother of the late researcher Dave Flynn, he he wrote the uh, foreword to it. He did a phenomenal job. Uh, I, I had the pleasure of having him on my on my show, The Sharpening, a few weeks back, and uh, since that time we become friends. And I love the guy to death. I asked him to uh, if if he would do the foreword, and uh, he. Uh, he graciously accepted, which I was I was very happy about. So, uh, yeah, Mark Flynn wrote it. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Great guy there. Hey, uh, you know, uh, I'm looking at looking at some of the the, the questions I've, I've written down here. I want to talk about uh, 
aliens visiting us from other solar systems and interdimensional interdimensional beings. One of my favorite topics. That's why you're such a great fit for the edge, uh, Josh, because you're 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 out you're out in the cutting edge of investigating and researching this kind of thing. But uh, what gave you the impetus, the drive to? Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.